Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tarasenko down the right wing. He drives the net. He shoots and scores. Tarasenko moves it ahead. Thomas, far wing. In. Shot. Score. Callie Rosen. I'm sure he's got a call about ding-dongs in the pants every Kairu now and then. shoots. He scores. Ding-dong that one wherever you want it. Slides it through. What a pass. Rosen. He scores. Round centers. He scores. Walker coming down the slot. Onto the tape of Shen. Breakaway score! Barbashev to Kairou. He shoots. He scores! He fumbled on the shot, and Riddick let it go through his leg. And the Blues get it right back. It's 8-2 St. Louis. Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. It jumped up a notch. It did, didn't it? Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That's what it sounded like over the weekend is your Stanley Cup contending St. Louis Blues. Look good once again. Not even the BKO can work on this team, Alex. Not even three on three overtime hockey could stop them this time around. A fantastic weekend for the Blues. They once again come out with it with a couple of wins, a couple of games with more than five goals seems to be the theme for this team, man. You can't stop them offensively right now. Yeah, the Easter Bunny showed up into Nashville and just laid eight eggs out there for Nashville. You see how I tied in Easter, the holiday? Happy Easter weekend, buddy. <laughs> I got it. I got okay, it. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, I, I liked your tweet on, uh, what was that, Saturday night, BK, saying that three-on-three overtime can't <laughs> stop this Blues team. And in all reality, that's when you know this team's clicking because this team had one win and like nine chances before their last two against Minnesota to win it in overtime, and they looked bad. And then you get two games against Minnesota, and the Blues, they play a patient style in OT, but they also will kind of ram it down your throat if you have the opportunity to do that and that's what Buchnevich did can you imagine being a wild fan and seeing on the stat sheet like oh yeah we're going to overtime blue stink in overtime no way they beat us here and and, and Minnesota's you really good off and like all of these guys that should be outstanding in such a situation Friday April 8th 4-3 overtime win for the Blues Saturday April 16th 6-5 overtime victory for the Blues like, really? Uh, really, guys? I'm telling you guys, like, the Blues are in, and it might not be the Minnesota Wild, Ted, because Minnesota, I mean, that's a good team, man. And they came back. Like, give them credit. They came back from a 4-1 deficit in the third period after they killed off about a little over a minute of a 5-on-3, but the Blues are in the head of Cam Talbot because they faced him twice in the last two times they've met up, and both times the Blues have gotten the best of him. So it, it was a really good weekend to start with that Minnesota game, but in all reality, guys, I was more impressed by last night because you played 
a physical game against Minnesota. That was more physical than the previous time that you matched up with that team. Both teams were playing heavy. You were finishing checks. I mean, Pavel Buchnevich got into a scrum with 15 other players because of a clean hit at center ice. I didn't know what to expect against Nashville. You had two teams that were playing back-to-back, but Nashville had been playing really well. They'd won six of their last ten. They just beat the Chicago Blackhawks, and they're fighting for that top spot to avoid Colorado in the playoffs. And it started off all Nashville. But the Blues are such an opportunistic team that when one team makes a mistake and they capitalize on it, then it's game over. And that was the mistake made by Nashville. They took the penalty, blue score on the power play, and then the second period opened up and the Blues just unloaded on them. There is no stopping this team when they continue to find ways to get the puck into the back of the net. And right now they're doing that a lot. They have scored at least five goals in, or excuse me, at least four goals in 12 straight games. They are 11-0-1 in that stretch, a 12-game point streak now for the Blues. The last time that the Blues lost a game in regulation where their opponent scored four, four goals or fewer was March 8th. We're looking at about six weeks now of the Blues winning every time, or at least making it to overtime, so getting a point every time when their opponent scores four or fewer goals in regulation. You can't beat this Blues team right now without scoring five goals. Like That's the way you have to beat them. You have to beat them the way that you have to go about beating the Chiefs back in 2018 or the Warriors in the midst of their big stretch where it's like, hey, you have to score 120. If you can get there, God bless. And they'll they'll tip their cap to you. And at the end of the night, maybe you can win. But that's what the Blues are doing right now. They have the most fearsome, in my opinion, Alex, offense in the NHL right now doesn't mean over the course of 82 games they've been that but right now the last 15 20 games nobody's been playing better offensively than the Blues yeah I would say the the more fearsome team in this stretch has been the Florida Panthers and that's it And, and Florida I mean it's hard to argue when they're the number one team in the National Hockey League but even in this last stretch they've still been doing the same thing I went back and not at the same level as Blues no, I think they have. If you go back in this stretch, they've probably scored the same amount, if not more, Don't think than that's true, St. Louis. But I will look that up for you, buddy. Jesus, this guy over here. Is <laughs> I, thought I he don't had, think I, that's true. Hey, to be fair, I thought he already had the numbers in front of he him didn't. and was leading he you into didn't. a trap. I got numbers in front of you. You want some data here, BK? Please do. So you yeah. just mentioned how teams have to score five goals. So I went back and looked at this. This season, the Blues have had 29 occurrences where they have scored zero, one, two, or three goals in a game. Bad news. Yeah. I was right. Most fearsome offense in the Western Conference over the last 12 games. I was say, Florida and Toronto have been more fearsome. No, no, just Florida. Play the, play the sounder, T-Bone. Back to my data. You know, somebody two. who actually <laughs> did work before the show, BK. Come oh, on now. That's not 29 necessary. times this season, the Blues have had a game where they've scored 0, 1, 2, or 3 goals. They've scored four, five, or six goals, total of 28 times, and then add in seven or eight times. They've scored a total of four or more goals 33 times this season. I mean, it just, and it really does feel like it's just kind of a, a avalanche, pun intended, I guess, on the opposition. Like Nashville, a perfect example last night. Nashville looked like a team, and I tweeted out, I said, it looked like their controllers broke. They looked like a team that had no idea what was happening to them. The, the Blues scored three goals in three minutes and 20 seconds. And every time you had Roman Yossi or Matthias Ekholm or Matt Duchesne standing there going, what the hell just happened? I mean, Callie freaking Rosen yeah. scored a goal, the same goal, the same play on a different goaltender. 
this Blues team has an elite offense, and it's no coincidence, too, that Jeremy Rutherford had an article out over the weekend talking to former Blues players saying that this is the best offense Blues have ever had. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service X line from the 618. Really, BK? You score more goals and you win more games? What a great thing to say. Well, I hope you understand what I'm getting at here is this Blues team, the way that they are playing right now, you can beat them. You just have to score at least five goals to do so. It's like playing against an excellent pitching team in baseball. Yeah, you're probably going to only have to score two, three runs. And if you get to them that way, if they have a bad offense, you can find a way to win. Some of the teams across baseball, like the way that the Rockies once upon a time were constructed, you could beat them, but you were going to have to beat them like eight to seven. It was just going to be stylistically a very different game than if you're going up against an excellent pitching staff. For example, this doesn't necessarily mean that you win right now. Fourth in the NHL in goals per game over this stretch of time in the Blues where they've had the 12 game stretch of four more goals. Washington Capitals are scoring an average of four and a half goals per game in this stretch. Would you be surprised to know that they're five and three over that stretch of time? Doesn't mean that they're just automatically winning games. You also have to stop the puck from going into your net. And Alex, that's where I wanted to get to next. Billy Husso has been really darn good this year. Jordan Bennington's been surprisingly good in his last three starts. That is an exceptionally small sample size. He's done so credit where it's due against Nashville. That was an outstanding start. Same thing against New York, although that's not exactly a potent offense. They are the defensive team that we've talked about. Did it against Buffalo. I'm going to give him his props. He got it done. They had struggled against teams like that. If I'm going to criticize him for that, I also have to give him credit. So mind you, it's a Buffalo team that just scored five goals on the Toronto Maple Leafs. They stink. (laughs) It's three games. He's done his job and he's done it well. Does this open the door in your mind? Down the stretch, there's only six games remaining in the regular season for Jordan Bennington to potentially be your game one starter. Uh, let me add on to that before I answer that, because it's the first time he's put three games together, three good games together since the beginning of the season. He's never had a three game winning streak other than at the beginning of the year where he won four consecutive games. He's had two, but it's always been that third game. You had a back to back scenario where he played well against Edmonton and Minnesota, lost the game against Pittsburgh, back to back against Philly and Chicago, lost the game against the Islanders, albeit he had a good game there. So, I mean, you're getting more consistency from him right now. And also, that Nashville game, that got out of hand in the third period, and the Blues' defense may not have been playing at their best, and Bennington came up big for him, especially in the first period. It hasn't changed my opinion yet on who's starting game one of the playoffs against Minnesota because it's still Villejuso. But the conversation is back open. The book is open. The competition is flowing right now. And Joey said this on the broadcast yesterday, too, which really opened up my eyes. This is a situation where I, I, I mean this sincerely. I'm not just saying this. I think that the audition is still out there. I don't know if there's a, a clear verdict for Craig Berube about who he's going to go with for game one just yet. It would appear Billy Huso is the guy for right now. But you watch. You, you, you see if Bennington's going to compete. And I mean compete the way he did the other night. If, if he could do that like he did against the Buffalo Sabres and he can get another win here and keep the score down to one or two, uh, it's going to open some eyes for this coaching staff or maybe they need to rethink some things. You got six games left and you only got one more set of back-to-backs. You got two days off in between the final two games of the season with Colorado and Vegas. I would not be surprised if you see three and three in these final six games of Bennington and Ville Husso, because I do think the conversation is back open for this coaching staff. You got to have both goalies at this time of the year. You're probably going to use both of them at some point in the playoffs. And again, I think Husso, as of now should be starting in game one, but can we really all 
sit here and say there's no absolute way Jordan Bennington should be playing in the playoffs. I get it. Nine games. He's lost all nine of them in the playoffs since he won the Stanley Cup. I get it. But we all yeah, also go to can, that guy. <laughs> we all also can agree that this team is better than those past two teams that Jordan Bennington lost in the playoffs. I'm not sure that they're significantly better defensively, but I get your point. Doesn't have to they're be better, better overall, defensively. Definitely. Yeah, if your offensive is killing it. To me, this is not a competition still. This is still Huso's job. And the reason is because the major gap that you just pointed out when talking about when Bennington put three good starts in a row together, that gap right there tells me, look, Bennington's probably got his mojo back, but he lost the job and Huso still played well. Look, I get it. He did not play well on Saturday against Minnesota, but that's the first running that we've really seen from Billy Huso. He's had just spot games where he hasn't looked good and he rebounds and he looks well. This is still Billy Huso's job. I feel better about Bennington now, and I feel better about him if I have to use him, but I'm not saying right now that he's in that spot to have that goaltending position. I just don't think that. I think this is Billy Huso's job until he loses it in the playoffs. I, you can't go into the playoffs going to Jordan Bennington right away. In what my was opinion. the stat you used to cite for me on Jordan Bennington? It was this weird one. It was super analytically driven. It was wins. Something called wins. He, he won games when he was out there. I feel like there's sarcasm here, and you know what? I don't appreciate it. Ville Husso's 8-0-1 in his last nine starts. Like, no, I'm not second-guessing this at all. Ville Husso is my guy. And until he starts losing games regularly, nah, man, I'm not making any sort of switch. Ville Husso is the Blues' number one goalie right now. Jordan Bennington has been better, but Jordan Bennington being better down the stretch does more for me in 2022-23 than it does for the playoffs this this postseason. Now, Ville Husso goes out there in the first two games of the postseason against the Wild, gets his teeth kicked in, and the Blues are in an 0-2 hole. If you want to have a conversation then about should the Blues go to Bennington in this spot, I'm more than happy to do so. I think I would still probably stick with Huso, but there is a strong argument to be made there that a goalie switch is the right thing to do. And I could listen to that. But in game one, barring something unforeseen, like him giving up six goals and multiple performances down the stretch, barring something like that. I don't see any way where my mind would be tricked into saying, you know what? The best case scenario for the blues going into the playoffs is Jordan Bennington. I would, it it would take a ton for me to get to that place in the next six games. I'm with you guys. Uh, As I said, as right now, Billy Huso is my number one guy in game one against the Minnesota wild. But I'm just saying if Bennington looks like the Bennington that we're used to seeing, and I understand it's a short sample size and T-bone, it's a great point. I know there's this big gap. Billy Huso earned the right to be the number one goaltender. But we all know what Bennington looks like in a playoff series when he's right. And that's what he's makes nine. that what <laughs> Alongside Alex yeah, Dan Bob Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. In 15 minutes, we're going to be joined by our Cardinals insider for the athletic, Katie Wu. She's going to join us to break down what took place over the weekend for the Cardinals. Couple of good games, one bad one. We'll discuss it all on the pitching side of things next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It was like uh, having flashbacks yesterday to uh, a point in time in June where all these guys are getting walked. And yeah, I mean, it's obvious when you look at what the Cardinals did in the offseason, what were they looking for? sinker ballers if they could find them but definitely strike throwers and so you got to throw strikes and he knows that and i'm sure he'll be better but i mean those kind of things uh can't happen especially when you have the defense of the cardinals 
The Cardinals yesterday took a step back when it comes to their philosophy of pitching. And it happened after they had two great starts, guys. Steven Matz and Miles Michaelis looked awesome over the weekend. That's the version of those two players that you need for the Cardinals to be able to contend this year. But then yesterday, your guy, Alex, Dakota Hudson, looked awful. He just couldn't locate anything. Oh, yeah? Well, your guy, Drew Verhagen, looked awful. I'm not claiming that guy. He did not look very good. And You put well, him in the circle of trust. I, I will say my guy, TJ McFarland, honestly, <laughs> our guy, TJ McFarland, That's really true. struggled to locate as well. All of the pitchers yesterday, other than Jordan Hicks, really, just couldn't seem to command their stuff the way that they need to. And for this team to be able to reach its peak potential, they've got to be able to locate. I saw this graphic on Twitter yesterday, Alex, and it's the team pitching summary thus far in 2022 and it puts you into four different quadrants okay so one of them is good stuff good location those are the best pitching staffs you're looking at teams like the rays the marlins the giants the mets it's the teams that you would expect it to be uh, another one good stuff poor location so these are the teams like the white Sox and the brewers where the stuff plays up but sometimes they're all around the zone and you don't exactly know where it's going and then there's two others Poor pitching all around. That's the Royals, the Pirates, and the Twins. No surprise there. Shocker. And then you've got one more. Poor stuff, but good location. That's where the Cardinals are going to need to be all year long. They are not a staff that has overwhelming stuff. You look at the stuff that most of their guys are throwing – it's not exactly high velocity for the most part. You got guys coming out of the bullpen like uh, Drew Verhagen or TJ McFarland or Nick Whitgren. Those are guys that are coming in for a very specific reason. They're going to command the ball. They're going to get ground balls. and They're going to get you out of the inning. It's not sexy, but it gets the job done. And that's what the Cardinals have put an emphasis over the last year or so. And on Sunday, we saw the inverse of that. And that cannot happen consistently. Thus far, we've seen... The Dakota Hudson that we saw a few years ago when he led the league in walks, if he doesn't turn that around, we're going to be talking about his spot in the rotation before we're talking about any of the other ones. He had two walks, though. But his command was awful. He threw 68 pitches and 35 of them were strikes. I, I get it, but Adam Wainwright's command was off, too, against Milwaukee. But Adam Wainwright has a track record of I, I, throwing I strikes regularly. I'm not concerned yet. Dakota with, Hudson doesn't. I'm not concerned yet with Dakota Hudson. Surprise, surprise, the guy who's on that hill by himself. I'm just not concerned with it. I I, I think there's there's going to be a little bit of trial and error with this because he, he hasn't he hasn't been available to start the season as a guy in the rotation in what is it, almost two years now? So I, I think you're gonna you're gonna have some ugliness with Dakota Hudson. And you're right, you can't have this, but that's why it's more important to have the Michaelises and Steven Matzes. If you didn't have those guys performing the way that they were, I'd be a lot more upset about the Dakota Hudsons. I still think you just gotta get him kind of weighted back into the water with this. I was more impressed by Michaelis and Matt's over the weekend because we talked Friday. Those guys are absolutely necessary to give you five or more innings. And you got it from both of them. I mean, Miles Michaelis nearly went seven innings for you. So he was great. You're right. You can't do this if you're Dakota Hudson. And, and frankly, a lot of guys were struggling in that circumstance, but I'm not as concerned about that yet. I think I want to see a couple more from Dakota Hudson before I sit here and say, oh, this guy cannot be in your rotation. I'm not there either. I'm just saying if this trend continues, it's what the concern was coming into the year. And Ali Marmol is going to have to be quick with the the decision makings in terms of putting somebody else into the rotation if that guy doesn't have it and finding a new solution if this guy does continue this trend. See, my my concernometer has started to raise because I get that this is his first time starting in the rotation in two years, 
but he had much better command last year when he came back, and he built up innings in the minor leagues as well. So the fact that his command is not here right now, I, I don't know what to tie it into. It, it just seems a little bit odd, but he has gone back to what he was when he led the league in walks, and that is a concern. And if he continues down this path, look, I know we're going to say he's got time to fix, kind of work these things out. He doesn't have a whole lot of time. Jack Flaherty is throwing. We don't have a timeline for his return, but he's probably got about, what, four or five starts, I think, before you could potentially see a Jack Flaherty return. And if that's the case and he's pitching like this, you, you can't have him in the rotation because this reminds me just the way his command was, the, his first two starts, and again, it's early, but it looked like John Gant command where it was wild, didn't, like you said, only had the two walks, but he's just playing with fire the entire game. So I, I'm not overly concerned, but my concern meter has gone up. But like you said, the, the Michaelis and the Matt starts were very re reassuring to see them because those are going to be the guys that with Flaherty out both those guys have to be the workhorses and they have to eat up innings especially in this stretch that they're going to now where they're going to be playing 20 games in a row without an off day that's scheduled and they didn't do that at all last year I think their longest stretch was 16 games when I look back and look so they're going to need guys to eat innings in the rotation and they're going to need Hudson to figure out his command issue during this stretch as well yeah and uh, to your point Alex am I off board with Dakota Hudson no I still think Dakota Hudson can be a a stalwart in this rotation. I still believe in his talent. And if he is able to locate his stuff regularly, it plays perfectly to this defense. He is basically like Steven Matz in that he doesn't have the same velocity that Matz does, but he's a guy that can consistently get you ground balls. And in front of this defense, that's exactly what you're looking for. But you've got to be able to throw strikes to be able to get those ground balls. Otherwise, why am I as a hitter going to offer at anything? If you're just throwing everything outside of the zone, well, then I'm going to take my free walk. And then the guy behind me is going to take his free walk. And then, boom, there's a single. And now we've scored a run without really doing any sort of damage against you. And that was the problem for the Cardinals in June of last year. And yesterday was just it felt like another version of that. So I hope he's able to get this back on track. I believe that he's going to be able to get this back on track. But there's got to be a little bit of urgency here, just like there was after Steven Matz's first start where we were all like, ah, that, that's not what we were expecting. If he can do what Steven Matz did after his first start, which is respond in a big, big way, we're not going to be talking about this after his next one. But this is what the uh, beginning of the season is for, is to find out what these trends are, and then we can make some evaluations from there. We mentioned Steven Matz. We mentioned Miles Michaelis. Both of them were outstanding. Yeah, I was encouraged by that. That was what they needed out of those two guys, because right now, you know what you're getting out of Wainwright. Maybe he's going to have some bad starts here and there. That happens. But overall, on the whole, he's going to be really good for you. Miles Michaelis, Steven Matz, those guys are pivotal pitchers for this rotation. And if they are good, if they're if they're the types of pitchers that we saw over the weekend, it totally changes the outlook for the rotation, especially as you mentioned, Tanner, with uh, Jack Flaherty looking like he's at least on the mend, potentially coming back sooner rather than later. I think Michaelis's was more impactful for me than Matz's. Mostly because when Michaelis is on, he looks like a legit number two starter in a rotation. And, I mean, we've seen it in the past. Steven Matz, you know, maybe at best he looks like a guy who's a three in your rotation, but he's inducing ground balls and you're getting innings from him. But Miles Michaelis has the, it kind of like is a Lance Lynn effect for me. Like, he has the opportunity to give you seven innings every time he goes out there. One, it's taking stress off of your bullpen. Two, you know your defense is going to be for them. And three, I mean, you got an impactful guy in your rotation that you were desperately missing without Jack Flaherty. So I was more excited about Michaelis's finish to the game than Steven Matz's. 
Yeah, I, I was glad to see both probably at the same excitement level because Michaelis, you know, I, I think when he's healthy, like you said, he can go out there and he can eat six, seven innings consistently. He could be a solid number two for you along with an Adam Wainwright. You could have two twos in your rotation. And then Matt's, I was just excited because he didn't have the blister thing because how many times have we seen pitchers that come up with blisters and it just reoccurs, reoccurs, reoccurs. Now, that could still happen, but the Cardinals seem confident that it's not going to. And, and that's kind of what you expected when you gave him the four-year contract was a start very similar to that and yep. pitching in that kind of ballpark too where it is a very hitter friendly ballpark uh, especially with the roof closed in early season so the ball is going to still travel there I thought both looked really good I thought both had great command of their pitches I, and just the fact of the matter that they could eat up innings and kind of rest the bullpen it, it allowed for you to kind of have not allow you to have but it made that start from Hudson yesterday a little bit easier to swallow because you were able to keep your bullpen pretty much fairly well rested and I thought Marmol handled both those games very well with those guys I think the reason why I would probably Alex your point on Michaelis is is well well taken the reason why I would probably go with Matt in terms of the guy that it, it was more important for me to see a bounce back from him is because of those blisters that you were talking about Tanner it makes me feel like his start last Sunday was almost exclusively tied to those blisters because now you can point to, okay, the first two innings, he was amazing last Mm -hmm. weekend. And then this weekend he gets in there and he looks awesome. And the only time that we've seen him really falter was right after they said he got those blisters. So maybe this is me looking for an explanation as to why he fell apart. It probably is, but it is easy to explain it that way. Excuse it, but explain it. And then if he continues in this trend moving forward, I can say to myself, okay, yeah, he was fine other than that one start where he got the blisters midway through and then he fell apart. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm sure Dakota Hudson probably had a blister then and he just didn't want to tell people because it's an excuse. So Katie Wu of The Athletic joins us next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Off and running on a Monday morning with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I just did that. Who's I'm running? Brandon Kylie. Let's talk now to Katie Wu, the Cardinals the insider for The Athletic. You should follow her on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. She's joining us via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Katie, are you down in Miami yet? Uh, I am not down in Miami, although I am a little concerned on why you didn't introduce me twice if you're going to introduce <laughs> everybody else twice. Amen to that, um, Katie. <laughs> Not in Miami. I'm actually off the Miami series, but I will rejoin the team in Cincinnati. How do you get off the Miami series, Katie, when you were stuck in Milwaukee when it was so yeah, cold? You got Milwaukee and Cincinnati yeah. and pointed the Miami series. This seems like we're hustling backwards here. And my strongly worded email to um, both the weather and my editor, which isn't even her decision, um, <laughs> I, that's exactly what I was what I was getting at. But, hey, it's all good. It's early in the season, and I did just spend close to a month in Jupiter so it all balances out. Well, that ruins my intro then, Katie, because I was going to say, like, Mr. Worldwide is Pitbull. Oh, Katie Wu is Ms. Worldwide in Miami. <laughs> um, no, I wish. Maybe in my best dreams. But no, that's okay. <laughs> all right, Katie, let's talk about this Cardinals weekend, uh, what we saw from them. Let's start with the good, and that was Miles Michaelis and uh, Steven Matz, both of them bouncing back from their tough first starts. What did you see that worked for them the second go around? You know, what I saw from, from Miles and Matt is a lot from what we saw um, in, in spring training. Just exceptional command, good location. I thought both pitchers really commanded their location well in their starts. And it was, you know, it was, I think it's very easy when you are coming into a season that there are plenty of questions about the rotation. Past seasons have warranted obvious skepticism, and, and I totally understand that. 
So I think I understand the fan reaction to both Miles and Matt's first starts, which weren't great. However, and it's easy to overreact just based on all the situations that I just mentioned. But when you saw what they did in Milwaukee, I think that's much more indicative of, one, what we saw in the spring, and two, of what we can expect to see throughout the season. Uh, I Again, I 100% understand the skepticism regarding the rotation. It certainly doesn't help when you lose Jack Flaherty before the season even starts. But all spring, we saw Miles be pretty dominant, quick, efficient. You know, he was hitting his spots. Andrew Kisner said on about Stephen Matz the other day that he knew Matz was going to go out there and shove because his bullpen was so good. He was hitting all his spots, hitting all his locations, that Kisner wasn't even surprised that Matz was that effective against the Brewers. So I think, you know, obviously you know what you're going to get from Adam Wainwright almost every time. I think it's you're almost to the point where you can start penciling in some durability from Miles and some effectiveness from Steven, and the Cardinals are hoping that can carry them until Jack comes back. Well, and then the other pitcher I wanted to talk with you about over the weekend, Katie, was Dakota Hudson, because last week you told us that you're going to die on that hill with Ryan Helsley. I'm on a hill by myself dying that I feel like Dakota Hudson can turn into a legit number two starter for this team. But what would you see in his start? You know, I'm actually going to go on board with you because I did write in the beginning of the season that Dakota Hudson was my breakout candidate for this team. And as we know, boys, it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish. Um, Dakota was just was struggling. He was laboring a little bit. He didn't really have any command, had, uh, especially that first inning. He didn't seem to know where the ball was going at all. Kisner didn't either. Um, but, you know, he did settle in through the, through the second and third inning. second inning wasn't as great or wasn't as bad as the first. It wasn't great. But the third inning, he did get through the heart of the order in order. So... With Dakota, I think it's more, you know, finding his feel. He was pretty frustrated after yesterday's outing, and understandably so, when he said, you know, it just took him a long time to get settled in, and that can't happen when he's expected to go five, six innings each start. Obviously, three is not going to cut it in any situation. So you have to remember, these guys are coming in off a very short spring. Dakota didn't really pitch all of 2021, minus those two appearances coming back from Tommy John surgery. Sometimes it takes a little while for these guys to get fully comfortable um, but, you know, I'm not ultimately that worried about Dakota Hudson yet. Just like I don't think we should overreact over a bad start from Miles and a good start from Miles, a bad start from Matt and a good start from Matt. I don't think we should overreact too much on a poor start from Dakota. We're talking to Katie Wu of The Athletic here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Katie, if we're sticking with the theme of the starting rotation, the one guy that is technically a starter that has not yet made a start is Jordan Hicks. It sounds like that's the plan for Thursday's game down in Miami. Can you uh, relay some of what you've heard from the Cardinals on what's gone into the decision-making of when or if he will make these starts? Yes, when or if. I actually have a running joke in the press box that I don't know who starts the game first for the Cardinals this year, Jordan Hicks or Jack Flaherty. <laughs> but um, with, with Hicks, you know, I think the weather in, the, uh, in St. Louis during the homestand certainly didn't help things. But the Cardinals are so cognizant about Jordan. They value him so highly that they're prioritizing his schedule and his throwing program and making sure he is really set up for success, knowing that they have four other pitchers, and yes, I am including Dakota in this, that they can count on and rely on that are durable, that can give them length. Um, so it's more about scripting almost appearances for Jordan in relief when the situation calls for it to keep him on his throwing his throwing schedule. So like yesterday he pitched two innings that could essentially be considered a side session on a regular like starter schedule. It's a very unorthodox way of looking at it, but that's kind of how the Cardinals are approaching it. You know, the schedule to keep Jordan on is of the biggest importance. Um, obviously they're not going to bump Adam Wayne right an extra day. They're going to keep Adam Wayne right on his regular schedule as well. But when they're maneuvering the rest of the rotation, keeping Jordan on a strict throwing program takes precedence. So he will start at some point, whether that's 
Thursday, whether that's Friday in Cincinnati, it should be along those lines. Um, luckily for the Cardinals, they're playing another dome stadium, so weather shouldn't be a factor again. Um, and, and we'll see what, what Jordan can do there. But, you know, now I think what we've seen two very effective outings from Jordan, he's a Floridian, you know, stretched out probably where he could go about three to four in his first start. But, I mean, it, it's been brief, but what he's been able to show has been very exciting. And just his sequencing, his command, I've really found it interesting how Jordan has been able to temper his velocity and recognize when it's time to bring some extra heat or when he needs to kind of bring it back, reel it back in, and pitch for location. That's been really fun to watch in those two brief outings so far. Speaking of scheduling, Katie, uh, we saw Andrew Kisner get a majority of the starts over the weekend. And, of course, Yadier Molina, he didn't get to spring training until later into it. Uh, are we seeing this just because they're being cautious with Yadier, or are we really starting to see the emergence of Andrew Kisner as a legit starting catcher? I think both. You know, obviously, Yachty's still going to get playing time. And, you know, did he come up in spring with as many games as the Cardinals would have liked? No. Is he going to be a 40-year-old catcher with his body appropriately reacting to that kind of workload after, you know, two decades in this sport? Of course. Um, but I think they're playing the long game here. I, Ollie, uh, Ollie Marmo went into, just into like an elaborate discussion about what goes into to Yachty's scheduling early on. And they do want to save him for the long haul. Um, and, but when they said that Andrew Kisner is going to get more playing time, they meant it. I don't think it's unrealistic to say that the two will split catching duties, especially early on, 50-50. But I do expect to see more steady rotation of Kisner in there. Um, and, and there is no way to tell just how much Yachty will play. I know that the two, both Ollie Marmel and Yachty, sat down um, and planned a schedule for the next several weeks of when he'll catch. If you're looking to watch Yachty, I would say your best chance is to pick a Wainwright start. Because everything else from there seems to be up in the air. Um, but I do think that we'll see a lot more of Andrew Kisner. And I think that's going to be really beneficial for a lot of reasons. Um, one, I don't think Kisner's numbers offensively last year were very fair. I don't think they're an indicative um, story, an indicative summary of the type of player he can be. It's very hard to have consistent offensive success when you are not getting consistent at bats. And when you are relegated to pinch hitting or, you know, a start once every three weeks because up until the season, Yachty and Lita didn't take days off. So I think it'll be really good for Kisner, and I think it'll be really good for the team to kind of have a, a split between the two, especially early on. Katie, final question that I have for you is I want to preface this by saying I'm not worried about this individual. I think he's going to be fine. I think he's going to have a really good season, and he's been everybody's breakout candidate for this year. But Dylan Carlson, in terms of the raw numbers, has had a rough start to the season offensively. Uh, meanwhile, Tommy Edmond has been excellent, especially uh, going up against right-handed pitching, which has been kind of a concern about him in the past. Do you think there's any question about whether or not maybe Edmond goes back up to the top of the order while Carlson's going through some of these struggles? Or do you think they would like to see this get worked out for both players where they're at right now? I love baseball so much because for the last, I don't know, eight months, everyone was, was clamoring over Tommy Edmond in the leadoff spot. And they got Dylan Carlson in there. And now they're like, but Tommy's been doing so good in the nine hole. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, just, I love that about baseball. Um, and no, I think the Cardinals are really confident in Dylan Carlson. Um, and he does have all the makings of being an effective leadoff hitter. He's a switch hitter. He's fast. He has the power. Um, but he can also hit for contact and play situational baseball. For Tommy Edmond, I think part of the reason why you're seeing so much success with him in the nine hole is because he doesn't think of it as that much different uh, in the leadoff role. You know, I was talking to him the other day, and he said, for me, the only different thing about this is that my bat and the, my first at bat in the game takes a little bit while, a little bit longer for me to get to. He said, but as far as the approach, it's essentially the same. I mean, you think of the nine hitter now that we're playing 
American League Baseball and the National League, they essentially serve as a double leadoff. And Tommy was really uh, elaborate in explaining what he was doing in the offseason. You know, he wanted to hit the ball. He's trying to be more of a doubles guy. Um, he tried to increase his power. And when he's talking about power, he's not necessarily trying to hit home runs, though he'll certainly take it. That's obviously what we've seen early on. It's just having a more steady approach, the ability to hit the ball hard off the ground, um, and, and just kind of be a more all-around power hitter. And when you have the speed that Tommy does, if you're able to put those two weapons together, it makes you really effective no matter where you are as a double leadoff, regular leadoff, whatever. But I do think the Cardinals have something very special going on with their lineup when everyone is, is sitting on all cylinders. If you have Tommy Edmond in that double leadoff spot, that sets the table pretty well for Carlson, Goldie, who, yes, I know is off to a slow start, but he's off to a slow start every April, <laughs> talks to me in May. Maybe we'll get concerned. Um, and Tyler Neal, Nolan Arnado, you know, so... For me, I, I think the Cardinals like where they're at with their lineup construction. I think they'll, they'll keep it that way. Katie, some of us on this show have always believed in Tommy Edmond, no matter if he's against a righty or a lefty. And some others on this show believe he can only hit one side of the plate and believe he should probably stop being a switch hitter. Uh, I'll leave that up to interpretation. Katie, we appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today. Hey, guys, I always enjoy the conversation. You always keep me entertained. I will talk again next week. See you, Katie. Katie, we're joining us here on 101 ESPN. Uh, like I said, I've always been a fan of Tommy Edmond. Yeah, that's batting why some of us on this show. The left side. Dylan Carlson, again, I am not worried about him whatsoever. I think he's going to be a really good player for the Cardinals this year. I think he's going to be an outstanding leadoff hitter for the Cardinals this year. But the early returns just haven't been there. Um, and I, I think that's going to change. But so far, he is on the season batting 182 with a 237 on base percentage and a 240 slug. That is certainly not what they're expecting out of him. And I think if you want me to flip on the the silver lining of this, Alex, right now what you're looking at is Dylan Carlson has a 480 OPS. Paul Goldschmidt has a 458 OPS. Harrison Bader, who I think is going to be pretty good offensively for them this year, has a 650 OPS so far this season. And Paul DeYoung is batting like 170. Well, that's not new. <laughs> if you're looking at these guys who we all think are going to be at least significant contributors for them offensively, your offense has been pretty good so far. And also, you've got a lot of guys with room for improvement. So that that kind of shows you of what this could be if, like last September, everybody was clicking at the same time right then. The ceiling for this offense is still exceptionally high. They haven't hit it yet. And hopefully at some point over the next month or two, they will be able to get there. I- I thought, real quick, I thought BT made a good point on the broadcast. I think it was on Saturday, or maybe it was Friday, of there are games you can win where your bottom guys in the order can carry the offensive load, and that's kind of what's happened early on in the season. At some point, though, that's going to start to run dry, and that's when you really need to get those guys going down the stretch, especially in this 20-game stretch. They're not going to win a lot of games with the bottom of the order carrying this offense. They're going to have to get those guys going, especially playing in a warm place like Miami. That that seems like the perfect place to do it. Well, And on top of that, the guy that's been carrying you so far is Nolan Arnato. In eight games, he is first in the league in extra base hits, total bases, doubles. He is second in RBIs, third in on-base percentage, and sixth in total hits. Sounds like an MVP. He has been a legitimate MVP candidate through the first eight games of the season. Now it's incredibly early, but if he continues playing like this, woo buddy, he is definitely going to be in that conversation. Conversation. In about 15 minutes or so, we want you to fill in the blank for us. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line or the Rhino Shield mic drop features on the 101 ESPN app. A confident Jordan Cairo means blank for the Blues. Get those in for us. We'll get to that coming up at the top of the hour. Questions and answers coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. 
Maybe. Text now to 65780. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. I'm Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, fill in this blank for us. 65780 is your comfort service tax line. Also on the Rhino Shield mic drop feature, a confident Jordan Cairo means blank for the Blues. Fill in that blank on the tax line and on the Rhino Shield mic drop feature. We'll get to our answers coming up here in about 10 minutes. Let's get to your questions, though, from the 314. Now that the Blues are on this winning streak, do you think Ville Husso is still the starting goalie going into the playoffs? I do. I think that he will be your guy going into the playoffs, and I think he will start every game that you play in the playoffs. Alex? Yeah, I think as it stands right now, it is. I, I'll i be really curious to see how they use the goaltending the rest of the way, because if they go four to two or maybe five to one, then I think they're just in terms making of starts in terms of starts. I think they would just be showing the fact that Huso's the guy and they're getting him ready for the playoffs. But if they split it, I think it just goes to show you that there's still an open competition for it. But I believe as it stands right now, Billy Huso starting game one against Minnesota. Yeah, I, I think it's Huso starting game one against Minnesota, and he's the guy, in my opinion. I don't even view this as a competition still, and I don't think the Blues will do that either. What do you What do you think of this? They got six games left. What if you go Huso tomorrow, Huso in San Jose, Biddington goes Saturday in Arizona, and then you get Huso on the other back-to-back, and then you go back to Biddington maybe at Colorado, give him two starts, and then you start Huso that final game against Vegas. That way he has a game and doesn't sit a long time before the playoffs. That's probably how I would do it. I, I don't know if that's how the Blues will do it. I would go 4-2 and two down the stretch. I wouldn't go 3-3. Three and three. I'd go 4-2. and two. I think I would probably do something similar. I would prioritize... The games that I want to see him start for sure are tomorrow night and at Colorado. Those are the two games where I want to see Ville Husso in net for me. Um, and then from there, you can work around the schedule to make it the most feasible way possible. Because right now, like you're, you're basically locked into either the two or the three seed. It's you or Minnesota mathematically. And then it's just a matter of how much do you value having that home ice advantage. Obviously, you would prefer to have it. But I think I would rather have my schedule with my goalie set in a way that I feel like I'm getting the, the peak performance out of him than to get that home ice advantage. So that's those would be the two games that I'm making sure Billy Huso starts. And then from there, you figure it out. I think you probably want him going on that Friday against Vegas as well, just to make sure there's not a ton of time off. Yeah, that, that's what I'm thinking. That's why I would almost go to potentially Bennington in Colorado. I get it because you want to see three days Huso. off. So you should be able to do both, right? What do you mean? Because it's a Tuesday game at Colorado, and then you have Vegas at home on Friday. Yeah, but I, I'm just thinking give Bennington a start against, like, a good opponent and just see what he looks like in that start again. That way I'm not just – because, like, I would have him start in Arizona, see what he looks like, have him start the first game of that back-to-back, then go to Huso on that Sunday, and then go to Bennington – for was that Tuesday against Colorado? Mm-hmm. And then that final game, I want Huso because what you're saying. I don't want him having a lot of time off. What would you do there, Alex? I, I, I think – if Huso's my guy, I He's would your guy. I would let Huso play Tuesday. Against I'd let Boston. him. I'd let him play Thursday against what is that? San Jose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd probably let Bennington go Saturday against Arizona. Huso Sunday against Anaheim. I'd probably, honestly, I'd probably go Huso the last those last two games. If Huso's my guy going in, I'm letting Huso play five of the six, yeah. and then. I mean, remember, the playoffs don't begin, if I'm not mistaken, until May 5th. 
think that's when I saw Damn. the playoffs begin. Yeah, but you so, have to start him so you on, got a on lot April 29th. Of time. If Huso's my guy, I want my number one guy to be primed and ready to go for the playoffs. And there's some there's some there's some cruddy travel coming up with this road trip. You're going out west and you're moving around. You got the back to backs, the time change that goes into it. So I would play Huso a majority of those games. And then if he's my guy, Bennington gets one. I but, think after talking about this for a few minutes together, I, I would go Huso tomorrow. I think we're all in agreement there. You go Huso against Boston at a minimum. Um, and then I would go with him against Arizona on Saturday. So I would have Bennington against San Jose in this in-between game. And then I would have Bennington on that Sunday for the back-to-back. And then the last two games of the year, I'd go Huso. I, I can also see a scenario so where four to two. every game is a different goalie. I can see him go, who's so Bennington, who's so Benner. I can see that all the way up until the end of the season and make it a competition, if it is a competition. Yeah, and then that that brings you to Colorado and Vegas, and because there's a couple of days off between those where you got the Tuesday night game in Colorado and then off Wednesday and Thursday going yeah. into the Friday finale against Vegas, um, that's that's where you make your hey, decision. Vladimir Tarasenko has been named the uh, number one star of the week in the National Hockey League. That boy, Vladdy. Seven goals and 11 points in four games. He is unbelievable, wow. man. The way that he's... Is this the best you've seen Vladimir Tarasenko play in terms of his all-around game as a blue? I know that he just set a career high for, for points in a season, so I'm not going out on a limb here, but I think this is probably the best version of Vladimir Tarasenko we've seen. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this version of Vladimir Tarasenko is the version I saw of Vladimir Tarasenko in the Stanley Cup playoffs when they won it because... Just as good as he was offensively, he was even better defensively. He was back-checking, playing physical, going back and and defending his own area. And with this line combination that you have right now, yeah, I would say that this is the best he has looked in his career with the St. Louis Blues. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. In 15 minutes, we'll play a game of in or out. 65780 is the air comfort service X line to get involved. But next, fill in the blank. A confident Jordan Cairo means blank. For the St. Louis Blues. We'll give you our answers here from yours coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Drop pass blocked by Barbashev. Skeets up the left wing with Cairo two on one. Barbashev to Kairou. He shoots. He scores! He fumbled on the shot, and Riddick let it go through his leg. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kiley, that is what it sounded like over the weekend as Jordan Kairou finally got back on track. Two goals against Nashville, and Alex, it felt like he needed those. He has been a guy that on Saturday was demoted down to the fourth line, and Craig Berube said after the game, quote, he just needs to give us more. I want him to play with a couple of big guys down there and be competitive at five-on-five. That's why I made the switch with Kairou and Walker. Kairou was back to his normal role on Sunday against Nashville. Message sent, message received, it appeared at least. Alex, you asked us this before the show today. I want to ask you here, if you had to fill in the blank, a confident Jordan Cairo means blank for the Blues. What would you say it means? It means playoff success for the Blues. I think it's pretty obvious that they've been doing all of this without Jordan Cairo, without their MVP from the first half of the season. And he has not looked the same since that All-Star game for St. Louis. And whatever it may be, whether it be injury, sickness, or he's just lost his game a little bit. They've been doing all of this without Jordan Cairo. 
Think about that for a minute. Like, we spent all of last season talking about the Blues and only having Ryan O'Reilly and David Perron. And they have had multiple scoring um, players on this team, and Jordan Cairo has just been absent from this team. Now, he's still been picking up points. He had a streak where he pretty much had an assist in every single game, but he just hasn't been the same guy. So if he is himself, you're going to have playoff success. And I don't know if that means a Stanley Cup championship, but I can almost assure you that it means you're at least getting into the second round because having Jordan Cairo is just a, another weapon to put in stock for, for, for Craig Berube. And it really feels like Jordan Cairo's going through what Vladimir Tarasenko went through last year. Cause you remember Craig Berube saying, we need more from Vladdy. We need him to be front of the net. We need him to be a power presence for us. And everyone was up in arms about it because that wasn't Vladdy. Well, I can guarantee you that's probably what Craig Bruby's wanting to see from Jordan Cairo. No coincidence, he had that yesterday against the Nashville Predators, and he comes away with two goals and six shots on goal. I think a confident Jordan Cairo meets a Stanley Cup run for this team. And, and the reason I say that is, look, they've already got the elite offense, and we and we know that. But right now, there are times where you can look at Jordan Cairo and you can say, A, he's a defensive reliability for this team, but B, he's an elite goal scorer. And we saw that in the first half. And if you have him playing a confident level of hockey not only is he an elite goal scorer and then he's on one line and then he throw a Vladimir Tarasenko that's an elite goal scorer on another line that's tough to plan for a lot of teams have one guy that they can usually turn to in the playoffs you think of Washington who they're going to turn to it's going to be Alexander Ovechkin Uh, you look at Edmonton it's Connor McDavid Leon Dreisel but they're on the same line if you get a confident Jordan Cairo he's on a different line from Tarasenko and you've got two lines that have an elite goal scorer on it that you can turn to in the playoffs so if one line gets shut down and we've talked about this a lot this season you have another line that can take advantage of a mismatch in terms of the matchup and then you have two elite goal scorers so I think if Jordan Kyrou plays confident hockey like he did in the first half of the season the Blues have a chance to go on a deep Stanley Cup playoff run real quick BK from the 636 is Alex saying making it to the second round is a success for the Blues I think we talked about that before like getting to the second round and winning the second round in my eyes is a success for this yeah, season to a Western Conference Finals for you but you also have to understand that getting past the second round like once you get into the, the, the Western Conference final and the Stanley Cup championship, that's a crapshoot. I mean, as much as we want to say, well, it comes down to who the best team is. We've seen cases a lot where a team comes out of the Western Conference final and goes to the Stanley Cup final that probably wasn't supposed to be. Yeah, I've always felt this way in football as well. You learn more about the teams that are there on the final championship weekend than you do by talking about the teams that actually went to and won the Super Bowl. Right. Because those final four teams, there's not a ton uh, typically that differentiates them. It's kind of the same way a lot of the time in the Stanley Cup playoffs as well. Once you get to those final four, those, those those are really the best teams typically uh, that are remaining. So I, I did want to go to this. If I went through, I, I just want you guys to give me a quick response on this. Do you feel like right now you know what you're getting out of this player every night? Pavel Buchnevich. Yep. Yep. Robert Thomas. Yep. yep. Vladimir Tarasenko. Yep. David Perron. Yep. Ryan O'Reilly. Yep. Brandon Saad. Yep. Braden Shin. Yep. yep. Ivan Barbashev. Yeah. I think so. More often than not. Absolutely. The last guy in your top nine that you don't know about is Jordan Cairo. So what does a confident Jordan Cairo mean for the Blues? It means you have the deepest top nine in the NHL, and it's not all that close. No other team can say that. None. No other team can go through their top nine and say confidently going into the playoffs, I know what every single one of them is going to give me on a night-in, night-out basis. And even if they did pretend to themselves for a moment that they can say that, none of them can then look 
look up and down and say, Vladimir Tarasenko, 30-goal scorer, Pavel Buchnevich, David Perron, Jordan Kairou, probably Braden Shin and Ivan Barbashev, all 25-goal scorers. Brandon Saad, 22-goal scorer, Ryan O'Reilly and Robert Thomas, potential 20-goal scorers. Nobody else boasts that. Nobody in the NHL. So how does this team win in the playoffs? It's by that. It's by what Doug Armstrong told us last year in his exit interview. This is the pack of wolves mentality. They've got that to a T right now. If they can get Jordan Cairo involved in that because he has one goal going into yesterday in his last 16 games. If you start getting him to be a point per game producer again. Oh, buddy. Good luck against this team. Against the Wild, against Colorado, against Calgary, they can play with anybody. That doesn't mean they will win for sure because a seven-game series, weird stuff happens. You get bad puck bounces, and suddenly you're down 2-0 in a series, and we all know that's not a good place to be in. But this team would be well-situated to go on a cup run, as both of you said, if they've got a healthy and confident Jordan Kyrie. Yeah, that's why the, the the narrative that we've heard from so many national analysts, and look, we've had Greg Wyshynski on. I t- talked with Emily Kaplan um, Saturday before our pregame show. The narrative that I'm hearing from so many people on the national side of, wow, the Blues, they, they could upset some teams in the playoffs. I just think that's a joke. Curbs and I talked about that Saturday uh, during the game. Like, you have a team that's got over 100 points this season in the National Hockey League. You have a team that, if they were to win out, would have the most points in franchise history. There is absolutely no way that you can make an argument if the Blues win against the X team that they've upset them. I, I, I wouldn't even hear it with Colorado anymore. Like, I get Colorado's a monster. But the Blues are, are in that exact same category. We've talked about it before. Being top five in all of the categories, goals for, goals against, power play, penalty kill. I'm done with the narrative of, oh, well, Colorado's the best team in the West. Yeah, you know what? Statistically, they probably are. But they don't have what the Blues have. Experience in the postseason, and they also don't have what the Blues have in terms of depth of scoring on this offense. And if Kyrou's playing to this potential... There's no way somebody can make an argument to me that, oh, well, the Blues just upset X team in the playoffs. So let's get to some of these texts. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for what a confident Jordan Cairo means for the Blues. Uh, This one from the 314. Confident Cairo means money. It seems like when Robert Thomas is firing on all cylinders, Cairo seems to be in a lull, and the same is true vice versa. If we get both of them going and doing their thing individually at the same time, it means a Stanley Cup is coming to St. Louis. Uh, Another one from the 618. A confident Jordan Kyrou means he is the perfect trade bait for Matthew Kachuk in the offseason. Okay. I, I mean, they're not as much as we don't like it, they're not wrong. Uh, from the 314. Confident Jordan Kyrou means the Blues are an offensive juggernaut. If we can consistently play a clean game, not sit in the box, we will see hockey here in St. Louis in June. Well, you don't need to worry about sitting in the box because this team is very disciplined. Man, that's maybe one of the more underrated storylines of this 12-game point streak. Uh, their their penalty kill has been outstanding when necessary. I think they took three penalties against Minnesota, and that snapped the a first streak time. of 12 games. Yeah. Outside of that, they've been two or fewer in every game in this 12-game stretch. And when you don't have to go to the box for your penalty kill, it just allows you to set your game up in such a different way. Teams don't know how to play the Blues at 5-on-5. Five five. That's the biggest thing. And that's why I'm just I'm not so sure about Colorado if they were to meet in the second round. And I know we're looking past the Minnesota Wild, and you can't, but Colorado thrives off of power play goals. 
65780 is the air comfort service X line for what a more confident mean, uh, Kyrou means for the Blues. A confident Kyrou means consistency for this team. He tends to disappear when he plays safe, trying not to make mistakes. That leads to him getting into Chiefs' doghouse. He's going to make mistakes. That's hockey. But when he's confident, he will be a plus player for the Blues, and that is a massive difference maker. I don't know if he goes into to, to Barubi's doghouse. Like I, I can understand that narrative, especially after playing on the fourth line uh, Saturday against Minnesota, but Craig Berube has made it very clear. Like the young players are going to make mistakes, and he's going to keep playing them. Remember that game? Forgot who they were against, but it was in overtime, and Robert Thomas allowed his player to sneak behind him and score an easy goal at three on three overtime. That's a mistake for a young player. Craig Berube has embraced these younger players and letting them learn on the fly. He wants to compete out of his yep. players. It's, it, there's a difference of playing the style that Kairou plays and going into the doghouse and not competing and going into the doghouse. It's interesting with Kairou because his body language tells you a lot about where he's at Absolutely. as a player. When he is engaged, he looks totally different where there are some times. And listen, man, he tries all the time. I'm not trying to sit here and say like he's not giving you effort. He definitely is. But it it looks sometimes like it, the game comes so easy to him and he's so unbelievably fast and such a graceful skater that it doesn't look like he's putting effort in sometimes. And so you're watching, you're like, man, he just looks completely disengaged from this game. It looks like his mind is anywhere but right here. And when he is locked in, it, it just looks totally different. So he's somebody that you can read into a lot, at least in my mind, based on some of his um, some of his body language on the ice. How about this stat? to show you how dominant the Central has been. And this goes into my point of not being considered an upset. And the last 30 games combined between the Avalanche, the Wild, and the Blues, so 10 for each, there's only been one regulation loss. And there's only, if I'm not mistaken, been three overtime losses? Uh, five combined. Five combined overtime teams, losses? Yeah. Like In their last 10, the Avs are 9-0-1, the Blues are 9-0-1, and and the Wild are 6-1-3. And And one of those overtime losses for the Wilds came against the Blues. No, two of them did. Two, yeah. Yeah, so (laughs) against non-central teams, I'll have to go back through to look at this. Maybe we'll get to that on the other side real quick. But against non-central teams, uh, it's... I don't think there's a regulation loss. It's pretty wild. (laughs) Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're going to get into the more pivotal spot for the Cardinals this year. Is it finding an answer at four or five in the rotation or five, six in the lineup? We'll do that coming up at 1230 in or out coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with BK and Ferrario. T-Bone tried to get me off my game. 65780 is the air comfort service X line for in or out. You give us a scenario. We will tell you if we are in or out. On the other side, we talked about the Central Division and what they've done in their last 10 games. Alex, in the Avs' last 10 games, they have zero losses against non-Central Division foes. The Blues' only loss came in overtime against Edmonton. Minnesota's only losses... And two of them in overtime against the Blues, one in regulation, but that was against Nashville. Last 10 games, none of these teams have lost to anybody outside of the division. So let's take this a step further. In or out, the Stanley Cup winner this year will come out of the Central Division. 
I'm going to say I'm in on this. I, I think a team that has to go through a gauntlet like either Colorado, Minnesota, or St. Louis have to, those teams have confidence. And I understand the East has a gauntlet as well, but like it's clear who the number one team is in the Eastern Conference, and it's the Florida Panthers. And I'm not sure people can make an argument for anybody other than Florida. I can make an argument, and I'm sure a lot of national analysts can make an argument for it being either Colorado, St. Louis, Calgary, or Minnesota. So I'm going to say I'm in on this. Oh, man. I I think I'm going to say I'm out on this. I, I, I get the confidence building thing, but I think these are going to be just training series. Like the Blues in the wild, that's going to be just an absolute battle. Same with Colorado versus whoever wins that. No, that won't be a battle. That will be a four-game sweep for Colorado. What if it's the Blues? Come on, man. Blues ain't going to be in a wild court. Oh, you mean in the second round? I no, thought you meant I'm in the first round. round. No, I thought no. you meant in the first round. I, I expect both. Sorry. The Blues and the Wild Series to probably be about a seven-game series, and then same with whoever advances to take on Colorado. So I think those are going to be draining series. I think whoever comes out of the Eastern Conference is going to win it because, like you said, that is an entire gauntlet. We're talking about three teams, and they're all going to be meeting up in the first two rounds uh, in this Western Conference. Yeah, with the Central Division. And I think whoever ends up getting out of it, whoever they run into from the Pacific, whether it be Calgary, who I think is going to probably coast through on that side of the bracket, quote-unquote, I think Calgary is the team to watch coming out of the Western Conference. I I think whoever gets out of the East is going to have all the confidence in the world. I I think people are underestimating. Like, from the 6-3-6, West could beat the crap out of themselves, and whoever survives doesn't have anything left for the East in the Stanley Cup Final. I think people are underestimating, like, how much these players dig deep when they get into the Western Conference Final and the Stanley Cup Final. also what the East is. The Blues went (laughs) seven of those eight are legitimate contenders. The Blues went through a physical gauntlet when they had to deal with Winnipeg and Six games in Dallas and seven. they went into double overtime in game seven against Dallas and they had plenty in the tank still. So uh, you, you can't underestimate a team regardless of who they go through in the first couple man, of rounds. Man, I, I look at the East right now. Like we talk a lot about the central and how good it is. And I'm not saying anything otherwise. It's incredible. Man, Florida, Toronto and Tampa Bay are coming out of the Atlantic. You've got right now Carolina, the Rangers, and, and Pittsburgh. I, I remember that series or that game against yeah. New York. That felt like a playoff game when they played up there. And then Pittsburgh as well. We saw what that looked like for the Blues. And then you've got Boston and Washington, both of whom I think would be awesome series against mm-hmm. the Blues if that were to be what it was. The East is loaded, well, man. Someone texted in and said the West is like the AFC. And I think I would agree with that. Would you agree that the West is more like the AFC than the East? I would. Say I would actually say the opposite. Like the, really? Yeah. yeah See, I, mean, I think like I, we're talking about eight, seven legitimate contenders. I think Washington. You can kind of throw a little bit to the side, but they're still a really good team. Yeah, but like I feel like the AFC West is like the perfect example of the Central Division right now. I, I feel like that's the Atlantic. Yeah, three teams with, with over 100 Florida, points. Florida, Toronto, and Tampa. That that division is just. And, and I, that's not even to take into account what Boston has done this year. And they're they're a good team, not a great one this time around. Like, I look at the Western Conference, and I say there's probably four teams to keep an eye on. I look at the Eastern Conference, and I go there's legitimately seven, if not all eight yeah, teams they, to watch. Honestly, remember. that's a good comp. I think the West is the NFC, where we went into the playoffs, and it was like, okay, you could see one of Green Bay, Tampa, the Rams. Rams. One of those yeah. three is probably coming out of this. And you feel good about any of them having a chance to win it all if they do. 
I think that's kind of how I feel because I think it's going to be the Abs, the Blues, or the Flames. Also, I think it's one of those three. Let's also remember the East plays a different style than the West. The Very East so. plays the run and gun pond hockey. The West plays the beat 'em up style, and that's what was so successful when the Blues played the Bruins. Uh, anyways, to answer the question on do I think the winner will come out of the Central? I think there's a good chance of it, but the East gives me concern. If somebody from the Western Conference wins the Stanley Cup final, I think it will come out of the Central. But, man, that Eastern Conference gives me pause. So I, I'll say I'm saying out on this just because of that. 65780 is the air cover service text line for in or out. Guys, in or out, Ali Marmol will end up flipping Edmund and Carlson in the lineup before the start of May. I'm in on this. Uh, I mean... I know Katie Wu kind of clarified our double double leadoff uh, conspiracy theory that BK hates. Oh, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's a legitimate thing. Okay. That's true. It is a legitimate thing. But uh, for the way Tommy Edmonds playing, I think you got to give him a shot. And for the way that Carlson is playing, we were talking about this in the offense uh, office before the show. I, I, I'd maybe put Carlson in the two hole and see how he does there, or maybe flip him down to the five or six spot and put Tommy Edmonds in the leadoff in the next couple of games. Yeah, see, that's what I would do. But I'm going to say I'm out on this because I, I think because it's the first month of the year, Ollie Marmol is going to try and stick with Carlson, not to kind of deter the confidence because they do. I think the Cardinals really do think their best lineup has Carlson leading off. So I'm going to say I'm out on this. I think Marmol is going to stick with Dylan Carlson up at that leadoff spot and just hope that he can kind of turn things around before we hit May. I, I do wonder if you'll see Edmund get bumped up from that nine spot. Maybe he goes all the way up to six, seven, somewhere in that range. But I would do, I would probably potentially flip the lineup, but I just don't know if the Cardinals will. So I'm going to say I'm out on it. Yeah, I'm out on this as well. Um, I think what you'll see is against right-handed pitching, I think you'll start seeing something similar to what they've done against lefties so far, where you'll see Edmund move up potentially to bat seventh, fifth. Oh, I mean, who are you batting fifth right now? I thought you, we were still going, going with Dickerson or Newpar, and yeah, then you're going Dickerson exactly. or Newpar or DeYoung is going to be batting sixth ahead of him. Yeah, I would go. I would go Edmund there against right-handed pitching, at least for now. And that can change, and he's shown some uh, ability to move around with the lineup depending on who they see on any given day. But as of today, the lineup that I would go with against righties is Carlson, Goldie, O'Neal, Arenado, and Edmund. I think that's probably your best top five, uh, and that's against right-handed pitching specifically. And then sixth, moving on, you can figure it out from there. But... Uh, that's what I would do with him. I'm out on this, though. I don't think they're going to be making a change that quickly into the season. I don't think Carlson has looked bad, necessarily. His underlying numbers are not very good. I think his approach has been there. It's just about executing once he gets the pitch that he needs to hit. And yeah, he I hasn't been there yet. I kind of look at Dylan Carlson the way I look at Paul Goldschmidt. I'm not yeah. worried about it. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt's got more track record than Dylan Carlson, so like I would be something to, to pay pay attention to, but... I feel like he'll get there. This is a different conversation on June 1st than it is on May 1st. Yeah. If he's Agreed. still struggling like this on June 1st, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you absolutely. At that point, we're talking about this for sure. But May 1st, I'm not there. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for in or out. Guys, in or out, the Cardinals should just start Albert Pools at DH more often, regardless of the matchups, because Corey Dickerson has shown nothing so far in his opportunities. I'm out on this. Does surprise, Dickerson surprise. have two RBIs? Did Came he? up in a big spot over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Huge RBI for him. I think that was Saturday's game, if I'm not mistaken. I think so, Wasn't yeah. that the game-winning run? It was an RBI walk, though, wasn't it? No, uh, he, no he had a single. Did he get a single with Oh, yeah, that's right. right. It went I, over the... I don't think it was Wong, like a laser Wong's, or anything. Yeah, it went over Wong's head, I thought, just yeah. into the and short outfield. Gets oh, laser. I, I... Yeah, Dickerson singled to right, Arenado scored 2-0. I think I'm, the game-winning run. I think I'm out on this one it's as well. Awesome. I think when it comes to Dickerson and Newt Bar, I'd probably be paying Albert Pujols more, but... 
I think I might be starting to look more and more at Nolan Gorman getting some opportunities instead of Dickerson and Newt Bar. Um, it, when it comes to those three, I think I'm still going to go with the matchups with Pools against lefties and then one of those two against righties, but it's not going to be for long. So I'm going to say I'm out on this one. I think I'm going to just keep Pujols in the position he's been Lars in. Lars had a good game. Yeah, Lars was good. I, I thought all the, like, res- quote-unquote reserves were really good over the weekend. Uh, I, I'm out on this as well. I would continue to kind of pick and choose your matchups with with Albert. I I think Dickerson's going to be fine. I think he's just gotten off to just a slow start. And his approach, his approach is what I expect from his approach. He's kind of a strikeout guy, not not going to make necessarily the greatest contact. He's got he's come up and he's got two RBIs. So I would stick with your matchups for now. Now in two weeks, if him and Newt are are struggling, then I think it's a different conversation. But honestly, too, also I don't know if Albert can be an everyday player at this point in his career as well. So right now, I'm going to say I'm out. I think that the Cardinals showed you over the weekend what their plan is. I, I don't know what it was about the matchup that they saw against Woodruff, and I don't think they're going to tell you what it was that they saw in the matchup against Woodruff. I wish Woodruff. they would. I'd understand better. But they clearly saw something that they were like, hey, Albert is going to take advantage of this pitch. That's the pitch he's looking for when he goes up there. And when he sees it, he, he destroyed it. And, and credit to him. He got it done. But they didn't see that over the weekend. So I think that you are going to continue seeing something similar to what it's been so far this year. And guys, every time that there's a lefty on the mound, whether it be late in a game or early, he's got to be out there. Yep. That guy is absolutely crushing left-handed pitching. So far, he is four for seven against lefties with two home runs, four RBIs, one strikeout. He's batting 571. By the way, for what it's worth, he is one for eight against right-handed pitching. Um, and he has a caught stealing against the righty. <laughs> How's that? I still plays can't believe your, that really happened. Does it plays into your narrative? I still can't believe he, he really hey, tried to steal. I thought he got a good jump. He, he, the, just, he, he didn't actually he did actually. The, the underlying <laughs> analytics and the scouting said that Pujols should have run there. It said that if you get a situation like this, the Cardinals should run there. I don't know if they specified no, that Albert. The problem is Pujols. I think it just, was a very vague scouting report. The problem yeah. is Pujols just didn't realize that and Woodruff was a righty for, and was staring at him when for, he was running. For now on, the scouting report says, all right, Cardinals can run here, except Albert, Albert and Yachty. And Yachty. <laughs> hey, Arnado. Arnado, too. Ar- no. Ar- we talk about Arnado laid down a single into a double. He looks more athletic this year. I don't know what Tony, it is, but the man I, is he looks on like a mission. It's the flow, man. Maybe. Uh, coming up in 15 minutes, we're getting into the junk drawer with an incredible moment on last night's post game show. We got to get to oh, that. Thanks, we'll do buddy. that coming up in about 15 minutes oh, or so. It didn't include you. Coming up next, the though, hell? the most pivotal part to the Cardinal success this year show. is it finding answers in the 4 5 spot in the rotation or the 5 6 spot in the lineup? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101. ESPN. And Pujols has tied it down the left field line. Goodbye. His 20th home run in this ballpark. Second of the year. 681. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. In 15 minutes, we're getting to what might be our best junk drawer ever. We'll do that coming up here at Impossible. 1245. But I've got a question for you guys. What's more pivotal to the Cardinals' success this year? Tommy Is it Edmund finding an answer? I'm going to power through Damn. here. Finding an answer in the four or five spots of the rotation, as we've been talking about for months now, or... 
Is it finding answers in the five and six hole in the lineup? We talked, I think Tanner brought this up previously, but the five, six, seven, and that being what ultimately determines the outcome of this season for the offense, because there were questions there and you kind of know what you're getting one through four. I don't remember Tanner doing that. I had to have been me. Which of those two (laughs) things do you guys think is more pivotal for this Cardinals team? Four, five in the rotation or five, six in the lineup? I think it's more pivotal for five, six in the lineup because I think four, five in your rotation is going to get solidified when Jack Flaherty comes back. And I think when it comes to four, five in your rotation, that's what your bullpen's for. If they're not at the level that you need them to be, your bullpen can come through because one through three aren't taxing your bullpen. You need five through six. And I think it's a perfect example of what we saw over the weekend against Milwaukee. Yes, Paul Goldschmidt and Dylan Carlson are struggling, but Nolan Arenado's hitting. Tyler O'Neill's kind of in a little bit of a roller coaster in the early portion of the season. Harrison Bader, Tommy Edmond, they're doing their thing. It's that 5-6 spot that you're trying to figure out that's been the DH and Paul DeYoung. Now, they've adjusted some things over these these past few games, but when you look at the teams that are having success in the early portion of the season, 5-6 and six have been hitting really well for them. I, I mean, I pulled up the Dodgers numbers who are 7-2 and two in the early portion. And, I mean, Justin Turner was hitting in their 5 spot mm. and Will Smith was hitting in their 6. That's absurd. So, I mean, like, 5-6 has to be on the same level as 1-4 through four for the Cardinals. So, I think that's more important than 4-5 in the rotation. I, I agree with you because I, I agree with what you said where that 4-5 spot's going to get more solidified when Jack Flaherty comes back, especially if Miles Michaelis and Steven Matz pitch like they did over the weekend. And I kind of expect that from those two. I think those two are going to be solid pitchers for you, kind of what we saw. Maybe you're not going to get, what did Michaelis go, seven innings over the weekend? I don't think you're going to get that from him on a consistent basis. But you should always get a five to six solid innings from both Matz and Michaelis, which will solidify that four spot. Then that fifth spot in the rotation is going to come down to Hudson or Hicks or whoever else is going to be up there. Maybe it's Libertor at some point this year, Woodford, whatever. No team has really a solid number five starter. And if they do, it's just an unbelievable rotation like what the Mets have done so far. But that five that five spot is the big one for me. Six, you can kind of get away with the six kind of struggles. Seven, kind of the same way. And eight, nine, of course, you put them down there, just get them less half-bats. That five spot is going to be very critical, especially if Nolan Arnado is going to continue to play the way he has. Because right now, I would not pitch to Nolan Arnado. I would make Albert Pujols, the Pujols playing well, so maybe not him necessarily. But I would make Corey Dickerson, Lars Newbar, or whoever else is hitting in that five spot, beat me right now when I get to that portion of the lineup because Nolan Arnato is just locked in and he's on a tear. If you can pitch around him, this is what the whole conversation was back when they had, uh, what was it, Goldschmidt and Ozuna. You didn't have someone behind them. So you could pitch around them, get to the back part of the batting order, and you felt fine. You had guys hitting out of uh, out of the specific order where you needed them to. And if you can't get this five spot locked up, and Pulse has been good, so right now, you, right now you're fine, but it's against right-handed pitching that I'm concerned where Dickerson – Newbar haven't looked that great. Newbar looked good, but he's only had one appearance. Dickerson has not looked good. If those guys continue to struggle, I am not pitching to Nolan Arnado, and I think teams will start to do that, especially as the year moves on, and if Arnado continues to be on the tear that he is on. Here are some of the players that are batting fifth in their respective lineups across the National League. Eduardo Escobar, Luke Voigt, Brandon Crawford, Justin Turner, Reese Hoskins, Seiya Suzuki. Those are some really good hitters across the National League that you're going up against right now in the five hole. And I'm with you guys. I'm surprised that we're all on the same page here when the rotation has really been the question for the cards. I guess that's kind of an indication on where we're at with Jack Flaherty, but just the belief that he's going to return. That's the thing. I think the rotation answers itself in the four or five for your rotation, because when Flaherty's back, you're pushing Dakota Hudson as your five or Hicks as your five. And then Steven Matz is your four. Like, 
that answers a lot of questions for me. Now, all of that comes down to Jack Flaherty being healthy, which I, get, I think is the biggest question. Sure. Yeah, that that's kind of where I'm at on this as well. But when I look at like Escobar, Voigt, Crawford, Turner, Hoskins, Suzuki, that's got to be what your five hole looks like as well. You've got to be able to match that kind of production if this is going to be a team that wins based on its offense. And that's where we're all at. Offense and then, of course, the defense is going to prop up the pitching staff in my mind. That's where I'm at with this team right now. So, yeah, they've got to find some answers in that 5-6 hole. So far, Albert's been great. He's been everything you could have asked for and then some. What about that 6 hole? Is Tommy Edmond going to eventually be there? Is Dylan Carlson going to eventually be there? Are you going to be able to get more production out of a Paul DeYoung? Those are the most likely candidates there. I know they've had Harrison Bader in that 5-6-7 spot a little bit. Um, Occasionally against lefties so far this year. Maybe you'll see some more of that. Maybe he starts producing. You've got some answers that could emerge, but they've just eventually got to get there. And that's where I wanted to get to Nolan Gorman for a second. Guys, he is mashing the baseball right now down in AAA. He's slashing 350 with a 415 on base percentage and a slug early this season of 840. It's good for an OPS over 1200. He has six home runs in his first 10 games. He also, for what it's worth, has 15 strikeouts in 40 plate appearances. So the strikeout rate is is still increasingly high for him. That might just be the type of hitter that he's going to be in the big leagues eventually. Does Tommy Edmonds' success early on this season prevent them from making that move of pushing up Nolan Gorman? Or is he going to factor more into the DH conversations than the second base conversations? That's the that's a fascinating conversation. Let me ask you this real quick. Does that concern either of you at all if that is the type of player Nolan Gorman's going to be where he that's matches but he strikes out? Because I expected. I, I, me too, but it really makes me, it brings me to like the Brandon Moss category where when he's hitting, great. But you're also going to go into a really big slump at some point. Are we and talking about Brandon Moss in St. Louis or Brandon Moss when he was with I'm other teams? Because Brandon Moss with when he was elsewhere, teams, I would sign really up good. for that in a second. And maybe that's maybe I mean because Brandon Moss when he was with the Cardinals, obviously he was at the tail end of his career. Although he did have a couple of really good seasons, but I think I think Nolan Gorman's trajectory towards the majors is going to be more on the DH spot because if Corey Dickerson and Lars Newbar don't start hitting more consistently then I think Nolan Gorman becomes that option and then gives Tommy Edmond a day off. But if Paul DeYoung continues to struggle, maybe Tommy Edmonds gets some time at shortstop and you put Nolan Gorman at second. I think you're going to see Nolan Gorman up here sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I don't think Tommy Edmonds specifically is going to be the guy that's going to prevent Nolan Gorman from coming up. It's going to be Tommy Edmond. It's going to be one of the shortstops, and it's going to be the DH that are going to have to prevent him from coming up. Right now, the left-handed guy is at DH. Again, Lars Newpar has not had a very big sample size. I mean, he had, what, four at-bats over the weekend, if I'm not mistaken? Oh, five plate appearances, three at-bats. Uh, he's got two walks, so he's been on base. He hasn't gotten a hit. But it's going to come down to those guys hitting, whether or not you want to bring up Gorman. And plus, I, I do think the Cardinals want him to be in the field when they call him up. I, I don't think it was a coincidence that that was something that we started hearing, even though it was Mike Schilt at the time. They started doing that, and they're playing him in the field in Memphis. If they wanted him just to get at-bats, they could DH him if they wanted to. But I think they want him in the field. But I think it could become one of those discussions where Tommy Edmonds playing really well. I don't think that prevents him from coming up because you could shift Tommy Edmonds to shortstop if you wanted to. If Paul Dion continues to struggle and Edmundo Sosa doesn't kind of take the reins when they finally decide if they want to make that change— then maybe you could see Tommy Edmonds shift over to short. You could put Nolan Gorman at second. Or if your left-handed bats continue to struggle at DH, then you can just bring him up and option Lars Newbar down. I don't think Tommy Edmond will be the sole reason why the Cardinals don't bring up Nolan Gorman. Yeah, uh, 
I think they're in a roster crunch right now. And I think that the result is going to be Nolan Gorman's going to have to prove this for a while. I don't think we're going to see him anytime soon, guys. I, I'm more than happy to be wrong on this. But when you look at them trying to get Dickerson some opportunities right now, they're already going with Albert more often against right-handed pitching than at least I foresaw before the season. And, I mean, you look at a guy like, for example, um, Lars Nupar. He's had one game in which he's appeared so far. Same thing for Edmundo Sosa. There's just not a whole lot of at-bats to go around right now when Tommy Edmund is playing this well. Now, if DeYoung struggles and it continues that way for another month or two, yeah, maybe they start looking elsewhere and you give Sosa an opportunity first and then maybe Edmund slides over to shortstop and that's how you get Gorman everyday opportunities. But until that is the case, I think we're just going to be waiting for a while. And Gorman's going to continue to mash against pitching down in AAA. They continue to increase his confidence coming off of what was a really rough spring for him. And we'll see if he's able to lower that strikeout rate and increase the walk rate as well. I think it'll if that come. ends up happening, I think you feel pretty good about bringing him up by June-ish. I think you get him up if there's an injury that pops up, that's which the other thing. you usually see one of those. I think as soon as something happens to somebody, whomever it may be, that's when Gorman's he's going to be the first one that they call upon. Coming up in about 15 minutes, is home ice necessary for the Blues, or is it just an added benefit if they're able to get it? We'll talk about that coming up at the top of the hour with the junk drawer coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Together Credit Union. Pay yourself with every purchase. Open and achieve it. Checking account today. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's dive into the junk drawer. Alex, last night I was listening to your post-game show. Which I was killing it on, with by the way. Joey and Curbs talking to Braden Shin. Yeah. It was great. And Joey has a good relationship with Shinner. They like to go back and forth. And we've talked in the past and we uh we had a good good time with the back and forth that Braden Shin had with Jim Thomas. Mm-hmm. The St. Louis post-dispatch blues beat writer. And pardon me, Jim. Shin was taken aback. <laughs> that was actually really good. Pardon me, Jim. By Jim Thomas, basically saying, "Hey, Brain, why are you slow? <laughs> do we have it? Uh, I don't think we do." So, so, like the way he phrased it, because like Shin outskated a defender, and the way that Thomas phrased it was. Like, we're not used to seeing you use that speed. The response from Brain Chen, and I, I was great at the impression because I've listened to it probably a hundred times, where he just, pardon me, Jim? And then he, like, he can't even answer the question because he can't believe that he just said that he was slow in a post-game press conference. It's one of the best press conference moments of the season then, from the Blues. Did you hear Saturday where Jim tried to ask Braden a question? And before he could even get a word out, Chen looked at him and goes, nope, one game suspension, Jim. <laughs> and and he's like, nope, Jim. Jim kept trying to ask the question, and Chen was like, nope, nope, one game suspension. And then a little bit later, like four minutes in, Jim tried to get another question. And he goes, Jim, one game suspension. So he suspended him from asking a question, which was incredible. Okay, so that's the backdrop of all of this. Here was Joey in their post-game interview yesterday with Braden Shin. 
It's a really quick Braden. I know some writers have called you slow. You looked fast tonight. Have I have I told you that lately? You looked fast. Hey, the guy that called me slow watches the practice binoculars. So you guys, you guys, you guys do the math. You do the math. Now, I want to say on the front end, Jim Thomas does an excellent job, and some of his questions get fantastic responses from the players, the coaches. We get some really good stuff from that. So uh, this is no shot against him whatsoever. That's amazing. Joey this, laughing during it This feud going back and forth between Jim Thomas and Braden Shin has been nothing short of outstanding for the Blues. I'm not sure that was even the best Blues-related quote that we got within the last 24 hours. Really? No. Well, that was a pretty good one, though. I I will allow you to play that hand. I believe my hand beats it. This morning, it beats Braden Shen calling a writer <laughs> who says he can't watch the game throughout binoculars. Yep. Pardon me, Jim. <laughs> I will give you that hand. I will play the hand that I heard on Carriker and Smallman as they were interviewing Trent Frederick of the Boston Bruins, who attempted. <laughs> To knock down Vladimir Tarasenko in their last Keyword, game. Keyword, attempted. Here's what they had to say with Trent Frederick. What What are you thinking on that player? Are you thinking, okay, I can knock him down because he, he as people describe him, it's like he has concrete pillars for legs. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about, I don't know about that, but I actually wasn't going to hit him. I was just going to act like I was going to hit him. Uh, we had uh, like a little confrontation at the face-off dot. Uh, I don't even know if he's that strong. I would say he's more fat to me, but uh, <laughs> that's just me. Did did I hear that right? Uh-huh. Did Trent Frederick just call Vladimir Tarasenko fat? Pardon uh, me, Alex? I don't Alex? know if he's that strong. I would say he's more fat to me, but... Pardon me, Trent? Did you just call me fat? First of all, like... Let's... Pardon me, Jim? <laughs> See, look, it makes you laugh every time you hear it. That is so much better. Like, let's go back to the Trent Frederick thing for a minute. How is he going to try and pull off the, oh, I was just trying to hit him to scare him. I wasn't really trying to hit him. You ran into him, man. You ran into Vladimir Tarasenko. That he sounds, just had a tough time turning. He lost his edge. That sounds like a guy who's, like, trying to, to like, backstep what actually took place. I don't place. care about any of that. Can we hear him call Vladimir Tarasenko fat one and more then, time? And then at the end of it, he chuckled like it was an awkward chuckle. Uh, I don't even know if he's that strong. I would say he's more fat to me, but... I, I mean, Trent, I love you, buddy, from the STL, and we always love our own, but Vladdy is nowhere near fat. Like, what are we going with here? I hope Vladdy hears this. Well, I, I really hope this gets well, back to he's Vladimir Tarasenko. He's a big fan of BK and Ferrario. Like, that's his number one favorite show. Well, number two, because he loves Fastlane with Jamie Rivers and Anthony Salter and Brad Thompson and Andrew Marsh. But this is number two on his list to we listen to. We are definitely to. top four among the shows locally here on We are here definitely on top ESPN. ten in the market for Vladimir Tarasenko. I Like, how could you call Vladdy fat? The man is the number one player in the past week in the National Hockey League. You think a fat guy is going to go out there and score as many goals as I he mean, has scored? E- even if he was. He's say, not. Say, I, I'm with you. Even if he was saying that the day before you play against the guy that was just named the number one star of the week for the NHL, a guy who made you look silly in the last game against Boston where he was chirped, if you will, and Pardon responded me, in the biggest way possible. 
this feels like what Nico Mikola tried to do against Sidney Crosby. Sidney Crosby. Like it, it didn't end well for Nico Mikola or the Blues. It's no coincidence, Vladdy scored two goals in that game. I can't imagine this ends well for Boston. And, and someone just texted in and said, uh, I heard it live and it sounded like he said fast, not fat. The cell phone was cutting out. No, because Randy Carricker just talked to him about how big he is and how strong he is. And Trent Frederick followed up with, I think he's fat. Tanner, can we, can we turn down the bed real quick and listen to this one more yeah. time just to make sure? Let, let's try to give him this out. Pump up the I'm volume. I'm not sure if he's that strong. I would think he is a little more. What does he say here? Uh, I don't even know if he's that strong. I would say he's more fat to me, but. There is no S in that <laughs> word that he just said. That is all fat. I mean, you could try to give him that out and maybe he'll try to take it. I respect it if he does. He was not saying fast. Pardon me, Jim? Coming up in 15 minutes, are the Cardinals really going to follow through on their Yadier Molina plan this time around? We'll talk about that coming up at 115. But next, does home ice mean much for the Blues against the Wild? Talk about it here on 101 ESPN. Pardon me, Jim. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. This is regular season. It's a regular season. Playoffs are playoffs. That's it. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Craig Berube after the game yesterday. Does the Blues win over Minnesota mean anything once you get to the playoffs? According to Berube, not a whole lot. No. According to us, though, I think a little bit more. I, I think that that did matter. And the fact that they've had so much success over them, 7-1-1 one, and one in their last nine games for the Blues on the road, and they have absolutely dominated the Wild since Craig Berube took over, I think it is meaningful. But Alex, how much does it matter where this series is played? This is something you asked me before the show today. They've played very well on the road of late. I'm not sure how much it matters ultimately, especially when David Perron went on the morning show and he said he actually prefers sometimes to go on the road to start a series. How much emphasis are you placing on home ice advantage? You know, if you would have asked me that Friday, I probably would have told you a little bit more than I feel now because the Blues have played well at home. Like there's no coincidence that this Blues team plays really well at home, which has been something that they've struggled with over the last few years. But, uh, you know, Jamie Rivers and I do our Riverside segment on pregame for every Blues game. And I asked him that yesterday. And basically what he said was, as a player, you probably prefer to play on the road more than home to start a series because there's less quote-unquote distractions. And I agree with him there. Like, not so much the family and friends that goes into it. And Jamie described this perfectly. But it's more the distractions of the media and doing all of the scrums and answering all of the questions and people trying to get tickets to go to games. You don't have to worry about any of that. The only thing you have to worry about is your schedule in terms of when to be at the rink, when to have your gear on and when to be on the ice for puck drop. And the more I've thought about it, the more I thought, I think it would benefit the blues because if you're going into a series with Minnesota to be on the road, if you're going into a series with Minnesota on the road and you're starting off, Everyone's going to be talking about Minnesota on home ice because I don't think they've lost a game on home ice in regulation in their last 25, 26 games. The advantage is going to go to Minnesota if they have home ice advantage. Of course, they'd be the number two team in the Central, so people would be talking about them. But I think this plays into the Blues card really well because Jamie said it. You steal one game. You steal one game in your first two on home ice or on, on the road to start off the series. 
Minnesota's backs are against the wall because then they have to go into your arena where you've played very well and they have to steal a game. And if the Blues are able to take one in Minnesota and then win two on home ice and enterprise where they've been so good this season, Minnesota's down three to one thinking, oh, great. Now we have to go all out in these final couple of games. I think for the Blues success, it doesn't matter where they start, but I can see a scenario where the Blues start things off on the road and it benefits them. So I would love it if they have home ice. But if they get road to start, I think it's going to be fine for this team. Do you guys think the Blues are likely to go to seven games against the Wild? Yes. I don't. I think it goes six. I would say seven. I I think they're fairly evenly matched. I think we saw that this past, the last two matchups. That's how I feel as well. And that's why I think it does matter. Because I want that here. I want game seven to be in St. Louis with this crowd behind them. I do think that matters. Now, what kind of value do you place on that? Everybody that you ask will have a different sort of emphasis that they place on the home ice advantage mattering in any one individual game. I think for this team with this crowd, with the way that they've played at home this year, the way they've played at home, honestly, for a while now, um, I I think it matters at least to a degree. And so are you going to go all out? crazy stretch down the no but i i think if you've got an opportunity especially going into that last game to be able to secure home ice advantage you put whoso out there you make sure you put your best foot forward and you see where the chips fall i think it matters for this team though to be able to have home ice advantage but it's only for that game seven prior to that i don't put a whole lot of emphasis on it in any individual games i think that's why a road start would benefit the blues to where you might not be playing in Game seven, because if you steal one in Minnesota, which look, the Blues in Minnesota, the last four seasons, they're six, one and two in Minnesota. Now, they're all really close games, like a majority of those seem to be one goal games, but you've had success there and you steal one and you play as well as you've done on home ice where you've won all of these games. You're looking at a three, one deficit for Minnesota goes back into Minnesota. You could be finishing off a game six in St. Louis. So coming off of that game on Saturday with the Blues now once again asserting their dominance over Minnesota. Alex, a lot of people have continued to tell us that they think the the Wilds are a slightly better team than the Blues. And everything that I've read nationally, at least most things, seem to indicate that the Wilds are probably going to be favored nationally in that series if they if they do end up taking on the Blues regardless of who has home ice advantage. I wanted to get your perspective today on why you think the Blues will beat the Wild whenever those two teams meet in the playoffs. You think this is only one reason why? Is there three? No. Better. There's five. T-Bone, hit the open! You're listening to BK and Ferrario. It's time for the Ferrario Five, a top five list of very random things. So, Ferrario, give us your top five. I was actually a little worried T-Bone was going to play the T-Bone 3 open there. So it thanks, is better. thanks for agree. not playing that there, buddy. I appreciate it. Number one on this list, in my opinion, is the offensive mismatch. And I think this benefits the St. Louis Blues. Now, they didn't have Jordan Greenway the last time they played them. They didn't have Matt Dumba the last two times that they played against Minnesota. So mind you, those are, are two difference makers that weren't in the lineup. But if you look at the last two games, the Robert Thomas, Vladimir Tarasenko, and Pavel Buchnevich line, they've had four goals. Four And if I'm not mistaken, they were not on the ice for a goal against at even strength. The best line for Minnesota is going to have to 
circle Pavel Buchnevich, Robert Thomas, and Vladimir Tarasenko. And that line is their Greenway, Felino, Erickson, Eck line. I think they've only allowed like two even strength goals this season. Where I'm getting at with this is now you got two other lines that Minnesota's got to figure out how to deal with. And I don't know if the depth for Minnesota can find a way to shut down the Ryan O'Reilly line on top of the Braden Shen line on top of the Pavel Buchnevich, Robert Thomas and Vladimir Tarasenko line. So I think the offensive mismatch goes in favor of the Blues in a best of seven series between these two teams. Number two, which ties into that, I think the Blues have their goaltenders numbers. Now, Marc-Andre Fleury is a different weapon when it comes to the playoffs, but Marc-Andre Fleury in his career against the St. Louis Blues is 9-12-2 with a 276 goals against average. You know what Cam Talbot is? And remind you, Cam Talbot is their best goaltender right now. Talbot has been playing better than Marc-Andre Fleury. Hasn't Fleury been playing really well? He has. Last I looked, he was better. But No, Cam Talbot has been, since they acquired Marc-Andre Fleury, Cam Talbot has been their better goaltender. I don't want to say I'm going to look at the numbers like BK did because he was clearly wrong (laughs) earlier, but I'm going to do do it anyway. But... Cam Talbot in his career against the Blues, he's 7-7-6 with an 892 save percentage. He's allowing over three goals per game. I think the Blues have the advantage in their goaltender. And I think offensively, you're probably wondering, who do we start in this? I can see Dean Evans and their head coach using both goaltenders in a best-of-seven series hmm. to try and figure out the Blues. But if they start Marc-Andre Fleury, I'm not concerned about it. They've had Fleury yanked in a game earlier this season when he played with Chicago. They've also had Cam Talbot yanked in a game earlier this season against Minnesota. So I, I, I'm, I, I feel like the advantage for the Blues would be offense versus Minnesota's goaltending. So you're, I'm assuming you're saying before the Blues game, right, for Cam Talbot going into Saturday? Say that again. Sorry. You you said that Cam Talbot had been better than Marc-Andre yes. Fleury going into, going that, Blues into that Blues game. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Prior to that, uh, since acquiring Marc-Andre Fleury, it's a little tough because Fleury started more, but Fleury six and one with a nine twenty one save percentage. Uh, Cam Talbot three oh and two with a nine twenty six save percentage. So they've been very basically similar, the same. but Cam um, Talbot's been very good for them this season. Definitely. Number three on this list is the power play success. Minnesota is the second most penalized team in the National Hockey League, right behind Minnesota. Before we move on to that, yeah. do you think that the Blues would have the goalie advantage in that series, out or Tanner? I don't. I think they would, but I wouldn't like make it like a sizable advantage because, like Alex mentioned when he started that, Mark Andre Fleury in the playoffs is a different animal, and if he's got a home ice advantage, four of potentially seven games. Well, Alex watch is out. Alex is thinking that it's going to be Bennington in that, so that's why he's going oh, with the Blues. Well, then, he has a history. I'm sorry. Of I'm sorry. Twice earlier in sorry, segments, Minnesota today, then has a huge goaltending advantage. Yeah. Okay. Who won the Stanley Cup for the Blues? Look, that's okay. like saying a number Save five starter one game seven of the Save World it. Series. I, I think that's the one area that I would have the most concern about going Save into that there. series. Goaltending? Mm-hmm. But I'm not I'm not talking about goaltender versus goaltender. I'm talking about offense for goaltending. Yeah. And, and the Blues offense against Minnesota's goaltending, I have less confidence in than the Minnesota offense going up against the Blues goaltending. Yeah, and I, I would be flipped. All right, Blues hater. Number three on this list, power play success. Blues this season, 33% on the power play against Minnesota. Minnesota is the second most penalized team before you rudely interrupted me behind Minnesota. The power play has been so good. We know this. And I think that's an advantage for the Blues because Minnesota, it 
it amp it amps up in the playoffs to a lot more aggression, and that's going to take some penalties at times. And we already saw Nicholas Delorier took a penalty that caused the Minnesota Wild to be on a five-on-three. I think the Blues can exploit this Minnesota Wild team when it comes to special teams. And in fewer play in the playoffs, fewer power play opportunities. If you have a really good power play, you can really take a big advantage of it in the Stanley Cup and playoffs. The Blues special teams have been so good in this twelve-game stretch on both sides, power play and penalty kill. Number four. I agree with that one. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate Two it. Two for three. Wish you would have agreed with the one that actually was one that should have been agreed upon. Four on this Phoenix list is, nine. is a physical play from Minnesota. I've, I've said this before. This brings the best out of the Blues, and we saw it in that Minnesota Wild game. Now, I know Minnesota came back in that third in period. Nashville as well. Like, anytime a team, and that's the Craig Berube quote that I, I frankly, I missed on the fast lane on Friday, and then I heard it when I re-aired it on pregame, and I was like, oh, damn, that's a really good comment. But Craig Berube said it's a pack of wolves mentality, and it's always been that way with the Blues. Someone tries to jump in and intimidate the Blues. They got four or five guys. The Ivan Barbashev play on Delorier when he went after Pavel Buchnevich was the perfect example of why I give the edge to the Blues in terms of physicality. Minnesota might be bigger. They might play nastier. They might have the Greenways and the Nicholas Deloriers. But the Blues play better when other teams try and get under their skin. And I think that's a disadvantage for Minnesota if they want to play that style against St. Louis. And then fifth one for me is this, just the confidence. In the last four years, the Blues are 13-1-2 against the Minnesota Wild. Goes into the, the goaltender com, uh, comments that I made of the Blues being in Cam Talbot's head. But Braden Shen said it with Joey on postgame last night that confidence is a weird thing for a team. That when you have it, you feel like you're untouchable. And the Blues have lost three times in the last four years against Minnesota. Whether it's been in Minnesota, in St. Louis, Winter Classic, the Blues have had the upper hand. And I think that is going to play massively into a first-round playoff. I understand Craig Berube's comment saying that regular season's regular season and postseason's postseason. But the Blues have experience, and going into it, they're going to have confidence over Minnesota. Five reasons why the Blues will beat the Wild in the playoffs when these two teams meet again, which is very likely based on the way that things are playing out in the Central. Number one, confidence. Number two, physicality. Number three, the power play success that the Blues have had. Number four, according to Alex, at least, the Blues have a goalie advantage. And number five, the offensive mismatch between the two teams. A little bit of news to pass along. This comes from Stu Durando of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. You're recalling announced that he is going to enter the transfer portal after leading the country in assists last season and breaking several slew records along the way. Yuri Collins has tweeted out, quote, I would like to thank my teammates, coaches, and slew for allowing me to be a part of their family. My three years here at slew will be unforgettable and have taught me valuable lessons both on and off the court. Big thanks to Coach Ford and his staff for giving me a chance and pushing me towards greatness. I appreciate slew and the fans for accepting me and sticking with me through the good and the bad. To my brothers, we are locked in for life with that being said i will be entering the transfer portal all right sounds like mizzou's going after Gary him. collins entering the portal he is going to be one of the top point guards i would have to imagine that's going to be available in that portal right now seriously so. is mizzou is dennis do you think dennis gates calls about this he should. he should. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They, they just got the number one juco point guard in the country and then they added another guy that was with um gates out at cleveland state but well, I mean, it might not be in yuri's because I, I would imagine if you're where's he from Yuri, Yuri? Collins. I think he's here, right? He's here. Yeah, he's oh, local. He? Yeah, he's from St. Mary's. But I would imagine if you're leaving SLU, you want to be the number one guy on a team. And I don't know if he would go to Mizzou if they've already got a point guard that's going to be that number well, one guy. I can tell guy. you he'd win that competition. I would think. Yuri Collins would win that competition to be the number one Over guard. the guy that they just got? I don't know. But he was like the number one Juco guy. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think they would be... They, I, I just don't know. I, I would think so, yeah. But 
I mean, you're calling some really good players. So whether it's at Mizzou or elsewhere, I mean, I would think Illinois should have some interest in a guy like Yuri Collins. Yeah, they just lost a point guard. He well, could he's come got in a and five star point guard. So I don't know. If, I'm with you, but he could come in and play right away, and he'd be your starter. I, I don't know. I don't know where he's going to end up. I don't know what his plan is, but um, that's a, that's a big loss for Slew. They really need him, and he's he's a hell of a player. Uh, all right, alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kyle. We'll get into some NFL quick hitters coming up in about 15 minutes or so. Coming up next, are the Cardinals really going to follow through on their plan this time around? I'll tell you what that plan could be next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I think Yachty, with uh, missing as much time as he did in spring training, and then it was shortened, and it was very tough for him just to even get a lot of games under his belt, which he doesn't need a lot anyway. But um, I think he's bought in on that too, just because it was a lack of time in spring training, and they want to make sure that he's available for the full season. And if they would have played him time and again, in these first couple of weeks, you really would have cost him and probably the team. And who knows if he gets hurt or, you know, that body's got a lot of mileage on it. So I think he's buying in with the idea that it's okay to take some days off. and, And I think he probably welcomes that too. That was Danny Mack on with Carriker and Smallman earlier today. If you missed any of their conversation, check it out on the podcast page. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers at 101ESPN.com and the free 101ESPN app. Alex, for the first time maybe ever, I think the Cardinals are actually going to follow through on their plan with Yadier Molina. Get out of here. Oliver Marmol over the weekend said, quote, his knee is no different than what it has been the last several years in terms of the soreness that he's dealing with. Several other body parts are hurt because this is a guy that's just played so often when he was less than 100% over the years. We're going to continue to monitor his playing times for another week or so. I think protecting him and playing the long game to make sure he's ready is the right thing to do. Now, there were reports yesterday that apparently Marmol and uh, Yadier Molina had a conversation before the game about what the next two weeks of his playing time will look like. And from what we have seen in terms of the reporting that has been done by people like Katie Wu and Derek Gould of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch as well, it sounds like if you want to see Yadier Molina out of Cardinals games over the next couple of weeks, plan on going to Wayno starts and hope that you get lucky if it's somebody else. This is interesting to me, man. I think it's the right thing to do. I think so far this year, if you're just going one for one based on the way that they've performed, Kisner has been their better catcher early on in the season. And I do have to imagine that part of that is because of the shortened spring for Yachty. But I'm glad they're finally pulling through with this. If this means you get a 100% version of Yachty going into September and October, that's the best case scenario for the Cardinals, even if it means less of him throughout the regular season. Yeah, I mean, you're playing it smart. And let's be honest, Yadier Molina is calling it a career after this year. And you've got to figure out what your catching scenario looks like beyond this season. And Yvonne Herrera hasn't got any major league starts yet. So Andrew Kisner is the guy right now, unless you're either going to have some type of miraculous play with a development of a younger player or get somebody in the off season, which I don't foresee happening. So this was just a matter of time. I am surprised though, because it always felt like Yachty was the one that dictated if he was in or out of the lineup but then I was also tinfoiling over the weekend thinking, oh boy, I know it sounds weird when you say it that way. Tinfoil Ferrario theory here. 
How much of this, though, is the fact that Yachty has Albert Pujols with him to where maybe it's not as impactful for him to be in every single game because he's got a little bit of an entertainment with his best friend in the dugout every single day. I think it's more about him seeing his own baseball mortality than it is anything else that it could. I I think it certainly helps that Albert is down there with him in the dugout because they put the video out over the weekend where they were having fun and like it just felt like you know what, like this wouldn't have happened in the past because Yachty doesn't want to sit in the dugout, but now he's got Albert Pujols with him where he can have a little bit more fun. I think Yachty seeing Albert embrace a new role last year made it a little easier for him to... That's an interesting way to look at it. Made it easier for him to kind of accept his baseball mortality as well as, okay, I'm going to be better off when I don't play in 140 games and instead I end up playing, whether it be twice out of every three days. I think that's at the point where things will get to at some point when he starts getting back into, if you want to call it baseball shape or gets back into form because he had the shortened spring training. I think at some point you'll get back to that, but I think it is part of, you know what, my baseball career, I'm not at the level I was at at one point. My body just cannot handle it anymore, and I'm going to let Kisner get opportunities. We've talked with Benji before, and Yachty, he said that Yachty has worked well with guys like Andrew Kisner, with uh, Von Herrera down in camp, and I think he's seeing that, and I think he's taking the role of, okay, not only am I going to be a mentor, I'm also going to take a little bit of a step back and let Kisner get his shot and try and prove that he's the guy next year when I'm gone. Man, it's a really good point that you made about seeing Albert Pujols take on this new role and seeing how it's it almost seems to be giving him new life like Albert Pujols looks energized mm-hmm. yeah. and I, I think he was that way so last energized year he tried to steal third <laughs> and I'm, I'm not work. even saying that like some of it certainly I would imagine is him being back in a Cardinals uniform there's some truth to that no doubt about it I think a lot of it though is just like him getting out of the situation he was in in L.A. where there were so many expectations and the money was such a huge part of that and him not living up to that contract in the second half of it out in L.A., I think that's part of what went wrong for him there. When he went to the Dodgers and he was just able to be a guy as opposed to being Albert Pujols, the one that makes $25 million per year and didn't live up to it over the last five years, I think that is such a sigh of relief for him. And now to do that here in St. Louis again has to be just... Okay, I can kind of let my hair down a little bit. I'm going to be fine here. I think Yachty might have seen that, to your point, Tanner, and said to himself, I'm not the same guy anymore. And if that means starting every other day as opposed to three out of every four days, maybe that's going to be for the best. I never thought I would see the day that this actually happened. I think some of it might be him seeing Andrew Kisner having success and feeling like the Cardinals are going to be okay if Kisner is behind the plate. I think that probably plays a role in it. And part of it's just trust in Oliver Marmol to have his best interest in mind. And all he said in the offseason, I'm willing to have those uncomfortable, difficult conversations. You know what's real uncomfortable and real difficult? Talking to Yadier Molina about taking a step back in his playing time. It's a conversation that neither of the last two managers was particularly interested in having. But was it least, more comfortable for him now that Yadi was able to accept probably. his decision? Probably. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of both sides to that, right? Like, if... I just have to wonder in my mind, and this is not a shot against Mike Schilt. It's just the it's different personalities and different ways of handling situations with veterans. If Mike Schilt or Mike Matheny was still the manager, do you think we would see the same handling of this Yadier Molina situation? 
I'm not sure. I I can't say that the answer I, is definitely that it would be just different. Just depends but if Yachty's accepted it, because I, I if think, he has... I think right now, yes, because I think there is... You can actually look at it and you can say, okay, Something's Yachty right. got it. Well, Yachty's a little banged up. I think we've heard reports that he's dealing with sure. uh, sore right knee, I think is what it was. And then also the coming into camp late. So like, if you could put a finger on that, then I think Matheny and Schilt would have gone with it. But the moment that Yachty gets back into form from having catching back up from missing some spring training time and he's feeling better and his knee's not completely whatever the issue was with it, then I think is when you would actually see whether or not Mike Matheny or Mike Schilt would do it differently. And honestly, I'm still waiting to see that from Marmolt too because right now it's easy to put a finger on, okay, here's why they're potentially doing it. I think they're going to stick with this. I think they're going to continue to play Kisner a lot more, but I got to see it when it's actually, okay, Yachty's healthy. He's back to looking like himself at the plate a little bit and he's back into baseball form after missing some time, then I'll be able to judge it from that. Because right now, I think Matheny and Schilt could easily have done the same thing where it's, okay, he's dealing with a knee injury, and he came into spring training late. Only thing I'll push back on is I we have seen him play through so much over the last five years in terms of injuries where he clearly is not right, and we can all see it on the outside. And the Cardinals say, ah, he's fine, he's dealing with some things, but that's Yachty. He goes out there, he plays every day, and that's something that he takes value decision, or is that Yachty? It's both, but it's supposed to be the manager's decision. The manager's supposed to be the one that goes to the player and says, for the best interest of you, both here and now and also in the future, we should be playing you less. But if you go down the hypothetical path that let's say Yachty is in the best shape of his life at this age and feels like he can play, I feel like Yachty would be in there. Like, I don't know if Ollie would be coming to him saying, oh, we're going to play Andrew Kisner. That's where I just don't know. I don't know. I know the last two would have definitely done what you're talking about. They definitely would have just played him every day. I don't know on on Ollie. Maybe it, it's totally in play that he might. He's playing Albert more than I expected him to. Yeah. So that's deferring to the veteran, although Albert's had crazy amounts of success when he's been out there so far. Um, so, so it's very possible you're right. But I think it was pretty telling when you got to opening day and Yachty was batting seventh. And he was not only behind Albert, but also whenever they went to the left-handed bats in the lineup, Corey Dickerson and Lars Newtbar were batting ahead of him in the lineup. That's not something you would have seen and under I the previous managers. Think the Even this year, I don't think those guys would have been. I think this yeah. year, if Mike Schilt was still your manager, Yachty would probably still be batting fifth or sixth. And, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, the lowest he's been this year is eighth. I think he had a game uh, where he was have a eighth. seventh. No, seventh, yes, but I think he's gotten to oh, eighth the before lowest. where they okay, bumped yeah. somebody Talking up above him. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think they moved, was it Bader or Edmund ahead of him for one game? So he's even gone down as low as eighth, which I think is a sign of to show what Marmol has been capable of in terms of just convincing him, hey, the best spot for you in the lineup is in this scenario here. And Yachty, and we've heard the guy, Yachty, Wayne Owen, Albert talk about this. If this is going to be their last ride together, they want to go out on winning a third ring together. And the best way to do that is to have Yachty at 100% by the time you get and to the postseason. And a team buy-in. And a team buy-in, too. I think this is the right way to handle it. And a lot of credit also needs to go, to your guys' point, to Yadi Molina, mm-hmm. the fact that he's been willing to embrace this. And they ha- he had that conversation with Oliver Marmol, apparently, about taking a little bit of a step back in terms of playing time. And they've mapped this thing out. It's much like what Craig Berube did with, with the goalie Steen. situation. Or Alexander Steen. Sure. But the goalie situation where he said, I've got a schedule for the way this is going to play out. And we didn't know what it was on the mm-hmm. outside looking in. He made the switch. He eventually got to Ville Husso where he's like, hey, Husso's the guy that gives us the best chance to win. So he's going to be the guy that gets the majority of these starts. And you saw that play out in real time. I think you're seeing that from, and maybe it's injury-related, maybe it's not, we're not sure right now. But 
I think you're seeing that right now from Oliver Marmol. Well, he's he's making good on some of the things that he said in the offseason. It's easy to say in January. It becomes much more difficult to accomplish in, in April. So credit to both sides of this conversation about uh, those guys embracing what this is. Plus, if you're Yachty and you saw the beat beatdown Kisner took this weekend behind the plate, oh you were glad hey, you weren't there. Hey, he's been there, done that. Back-to-back yeah. games, man. He do you remember when Yachty's exploded? No, yeah, I do, but I don't want to discuss that because it hurts to think about, man. He was back in the in the lineup like two weeks later. I've never been more impressed by anybody. I would have retired after that. People call me Beta BK. That that is an alpha yachty male. My God, I call you Soy BK. There's a lot of nicknames coming up in 15 minutes. We'll get to the BK and Ferrario rewind. NFL quick hitters is next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. service tax line to get involved in the show let's dive into some nfl quick hitters a big news of the day today did you guys see what the browns just did they're handing out money unless they drafted jordan davis i don't care wow actually i do care because i don't want cleveland to take jordan davis the browns have signed denzel ward to a five-year contract extension worth 100 million dollars it includes 71 million dollars guaranteed he is the highest paid cornerback in NFL history with this deal. Guys, is everybody just going to end up being a $20 million per year player now? Is this something I need to be I desensitized to? I feel like the problem is like everybody just wants to have the label as, oh, I'm the highest paid player at that, this position. I don't think that's a problem, though. I, I would say, want that, that as well. well it's if a you problem told me for the teams that are having to pay these guys. Apparently, the Browns don't view it as an issue. The Chiefs do. They're the Chiefs, right, Alex? Yeah. They, they can't pay the Tyreek Hill. I hope they stay away from Jordan Davis. They can't afford his talent. Well, they can when they draft him. No, that's true. But five but, years, yeah. But, but what I mean, is he the best cornerback in the football? It's all about timing. It don't matter if you're the best or not. Well, I just in the football. In the football. I know when I said that it came out so poorly. <laughs> I knew what you're talking about. Man. Thanks, buddy. No, I, I would still go Jalen Ramsey. Jalen Ramsey, for my money, is clearly the best cornerback in the league. He is maybe one of the most underpaid players in the league right now. Give it time. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Give it Rams time. can't afford to pay come to the people. Rams let's, and say, man, I need to be paid. He just down. started last year his extension, five-year deal worth $100 million. He's already underpaid. And this is why when you've got truly elite-level underpaid too. Oh, yes. geez. When you have truly elite-level players, like the best at their position, get them signed as quickly as you possibly can to as long of a deal as you can. The Patrick Mahomes deal is already a really good contract for the Chiefs. He signed that like a year and a half ago, man. Is it, though? Because you couldn't afford Tyreek Hill. He signed for 10 years and $450 million. They have, this year is like the first year of that contract actually kicking in. Deshaun Watson is making $45 million per year, or $46 million per year. Josh Allen's at 43. Dak's at 40. Matthew Stafford is at 40. I would take Patrick Mahomes at 45 over any of those other guys and in that stretch. Alex, we know as unbiased observers, he's a making of Tyreek Hill. Amen to that. Yeah. That's why the Kansas City Chiefs couldn't keep him. Yeah. What's your guys' level of intrigue for this year's draft? Zero. Ten? Other than Jordan oh, okay, Davis. Okay, sorry. Non-Jordan Davis Do you want a Jordan Davis edition. update? What do we got, man? Mock draft recently, boys, from Charles Davis. I would assume it's his relative because Davis' last name probably. 15th overall to the Philadelphia Eagles. How do you feel about that one? Blah. Let the Ravens take him at 14. Fly like an eagle. I, I don't. 
What's that song? I don't want him on Philadelphia. Something carry me. What is <laughs> How do song? you not know Fly Like an Eagle? Who sings that? It was in Space Jam. Was it? You've yeah. seen Space Jam, right? Yeah, I've okay. seen Space Wait, which the Michael Jordan one, right? Yeah, the original. Okay, I haven't yeah, seen no, no, LeBron James. Not the awful one. one. That's not even a movie. I think it's the Stephen Miller band. Is this all related to the lack of quarterback intrigue? Is that why there's less buzz around this draft? Or is it like the lack of star talent that's in it? I would say it's the lack of star talent because... Is this going back to our conversation last year going into the college football season where I read you the list of the top-rated Heisman Trophy candidates and we were like, who are these people? I I think so because, (laughs) I mean, like these names I know, but it's not like what last year's draft was with all of, like you got Trevor Lawrence and the wide receivers that were coming out of it. Is it because four of the top ten picks are going to be tackles? Yeah, that might be it. Whether (laughs) defensive or and then you got the defensemen that are being selected. I mean, you don't have an offensive position player other than an offensive lineman taken at least in the one mock draft that I saw until like the tenth or eleventh pick. Unless Carolina switches receivers in this year's draft, but they're like all at the bottom of the draft. I don't feel like they're like stars. Yeah, they're all at the bottom of the draft. Jameson Williams is a star, but he's got the knee injury. That's if he didn't have the knee injury, I think he'd be going top ten in this year. I do like what's his face, Sauce Gardner. That's a fun name. That's a great name. He's a really good good player. He'll be number two. I I think this is the least hyped draft that I can remember. In close to a decade. I mean, yeah. you're going back to like 2013 when Eric Fisher and Luke Jokel were oh, the top picks that we that were was talking a about draft. under consideration. Um, who's the guy that Alex, for you, you're most interested in in this year's draft? For whatever reason, you can take this in any number of directions other than Jordan Davis. Oh, come so on, man. really, are we asking you? Can we get Jordan Davis updates like it was Kyle Gibson for who's you last the- year? Breaking <laughs> <laughs> news! Starting. Who's the guy that you're like, man, I can't wait to find out where he ends up or what his career go, how his career path goes. NFL draft. Other than Jordan Davis. Correct. Malik Willis. He's the one. And what was the comp for him? It was we had this last week with the comp for oh Jalen Hurts. Yeah, that made me a little more skeptical about it. But I've seen a couple of mock drafts that have him going to Carolina at six. That's intriguing. Because Carolina needs a quarterback, and if Malik Willis is better than Jalen Hurts, I think that could be a steal because a lot of people aren't talking about him as much as they've talked about quarterbacks in the past. I'd love to see him in Pittsburgh. Malik Willis? Mm-hmm. See, I'd rather see I don't think he's going to drop that I'd rather far, see him in Carolina. Him in Pittsburgh. With a college head coach mindset, I'd rather see him in Carolina. Yeah, I I don't really have a good feeling where I would like to see Malik Willis go just because like I feel like Carolina, he's going to get broken there. Well, Plus, Christian let's McCaffrey be honest, gets broken. They don't have a head coach pass next year. Uh, they're going to fire, fire Matt Rule. It's just a matter of time. Atlanta would be interesting, but I just they don't have anything offensively. Calvin Ridley parlayed his way into a year-long expansion. Hey, if, extent- if he wanted it, was worth suspension, a- rather. He lost, didn't he? Did they've, he? Oh, they've got Kyle Pitts. He's good. couple of good defensive players. And I'm not kidding, guys. That's it. They might have the worst roster in the league right now, as who's, of today. Who's their running back? Is it still Cordero Patterson? Mm-hmm. He's good. He's fine. Mm-hmm. That's it, though. But, it's Tanner, average. who's your guy that you're, you have the most intrigue surrounding him going into this year's draft? Is there anybody that immediately stands out to you? Honestly, there's not a lot of people that stand out to me in terms of who I have interest in figuring out where they go in the draft. And maybe that's because, you know, I don't think there's a lot of star power in this NFL draft. And my team doesn't have a pick. So the Rams don't have a pick for like the next five years. So it's tough for me to really get interested in the NFL draft. I, I just don't see anybody. I'm curious to see where some of these quarterbacks go. Like I, Kenny Pickett, he's a name that I'm going to be curious to see where he goes. Malik Willis, Desmond Ritter. I was a huge fan of him in college. I don't think he's going to pan out as an NFL quarterback, but I'm interested to know where he goes. 
But other than that, I, I don't have a whole lot of interest in where some of these are, guys are going to end up going. If I told you there was a defensive end in this year's draft that's six foot four, two hundred and fifty-five pounds, and ran a four point five forty, you guys would be pretty interested in that guy, right? And oh, by the way, he was the number one overall recruit coming into his recruiting class and did nothing to underperform relative to expectations while he was in college. He went to a Power Five school. You guys would be like, wow. Why isn't he being considered for the number one pick, right? Is that Jordan Davis? His name's Kayvon Thibodeau. Oh. He was a defensive end. Davis is better. Davis is like 370 pounds, man. He's faster Uh. than him. (laughs) Kayvon Thibodeau is a defensive end that played for Oregon. And coming into like last year, around this time last year, when people were doing the way too early 2022 mock drafts, Thibodeau was typically right around the top three. For some people, number one. For whatever reason, there are people that think he's like a weird guy or he's a little too into himself or something. I don't know. There's all these rumors that he's just not he's not clicking well with teams right now. He could fall to the bottom end of the top 10. If he goes to a place like Minnesota or the Jets, maybe who have a pretty good pass rushing tandem or Baltimore. I think he could end up being the best player from this year's draft. He's the one that I'm the most interested in going into the draft. We all know who the number one player from the the draft is going to be. Jordan Davis. BK and Ferrario Rewind is next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today, check it out on the podcast page. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you can find it. Uh, tomorrow, we will be joined by our typical Tuesday guests, Jeremy Rutherford and Danny Mack. Looking forward to both of those conversations. They are still in that elevator. Nope, nope. We found out. Oh I got an update from Lou Korak. They were in there for an hour and 47 really? minutes. Lou joined me on pregame yesterday, and he said it was an hour and 47 minutes minutes for to reset for anybody that missed this on Saturday after the blues versus the wild game uh, a number of the assembled blues media were in what is a freight elevator mm-hmm. which you take up and down from uh, the the press box during blues games whenever you're going downstairs for the interviews post game they were coming back up to the press box and got stuck in there for an hour and a half I don't think I want to press pass and <laughs> that's why I always take the sweet elevator when I go to Enterprise Center and the one I, I said this to Lou yesterday Yesterday, I said the guy I felt the most brutal of four was Jim Thomas because he didn't get to ask any questions to Braden Shen and all of that going oh, that down. that was going down? That was, I thought it was going up. No, it was, going no it was coming back up, but he was in that media availability where J- Braden Shen told oh. him you can't ask any questions. So he went down there, didn't get to ask questions, and then got stuck in an elevator <laughs> for almost two hours on the way back up. You hate to see it. It's, not, Lord, it's not the way rough. you want to see it. Uh, the Blues are back in action tomorrow night against Boston. Uh, Vladimir Tarasenko, the number one star in the NHL for the last week. But I wanted to ask you as we finish things up here, Alex, about Jordan Kyrou. We started our conversation today by saying a confident Jordan Kyrou means what for the team? He scored two goals in the game yesterday after being demoted to the fourth line on Saturday. And that's the first time he's had two goals in a game, I think in like a month now. In his last 16 games combined, he had just one goal and 11 assists. Do you think he's back on track now? 
Or is it possible that was just a one-off and we're going to see more of what we had seen previously? Is there any concern about that? I don't think so. I mean, I feel like it depends on on the ice time, but I feel like when you have a game, not just the two goals, but six shots on goal, feeling more confident. You know, like he's a guy that creates his offense. He's a guy that skates into the zone. He's going to use the playmaking ability. It just comes down to his health. And if he's he's as close to 100% as he can be at this time of the year, I don't think that's a one-off. I think this is something to build off of. Again, confidence is such a massive thing for hockey players, for athletes in general. And you get two goals against the Nashville Predators, and one of those was scored. Oh, no, they were both on that Riddick. I think this could be something building towards what he's trying to get back to. The last time he had a multi-goal performance was February 25th against Buffalo. That was after the All-Star game, if I'm not mistaken. It's it's been a while for Jordan Cairo. Uh, He's the number one guy that I want to watch the rest of the season. The last six games, the number one guy that I'm going to be honing in on is Jordan Cairo because, as the morning show said a month ago, two months ago now maybe even, uh, he's the X-Factor. You go into the playoffs, and he's your X Factor. I didn't think we'd be saying that two months ago, but that's where we have arrived. Coming up from 2 to 6, we'll be listening to the Fast Lane together. We'll be back tomorrow at 11, right here on 101 ESPN. Pardon me, Jim? You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.